Good morning and welcome back to the other faces. Welcome for another episode of 100 Questions of the Winds of Winter. I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades. I am luckily joined once again by my guest, Emily of the Eerie. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm okay so far. We'll see how this one goes. As you can hopefully hopefully maybe see we're trying something different today we're videoing the the episode these questions maybe <laughs> maybe it all we goes hope. wrong in 10 we minutes maybe you're thinking what are they talking about i can't see anything that's entirely possible but the fingers are crossed that you'll be able to see us because this is something new that we're trying for this episode for other episodes going forward you might have seen recently uh, we did this for sporkers spectacular we'll talk about that in a minute maybe it'll work maybe it won't we'll see how we go but so far, that is the that is the mission. Before we get to all of that, like you say, speaking to you from, well, it's actually a cloudy Isle of Faces. Emily, what is it like by you at the moment? It It's beautiful here. Uh, I'll be okay. going out with the dogs once we're done with this. <laughs> Good. It's just a rainy, rainy England July here, so that doesn't make me jealous at all. Uh, in general, though, how have you been? It's been a little while. I know you had some time away lately. It has. Yeah, I uh, I got to go up north, spend a little time uh, on a beautiful lake, going kayaking. I think like I had some major Isle of Faces vibes because I found this like lagoon that was all misty with lily pads. And yeah, it, it was great. I should tweet that video because it, it was just absolutely beautiful. That um, does sound so, yeah. like yeah. I'm refreshed. I'm ready. Uh, we've got some really good questions today. But before we start, do you want to go through a few little housekeeping announcement stuff? Yeah, of course. Well, not only do we have the the weird the video thing, I'm in a slightly different place. So if I sound slightly different, don't don't blame me. I've also had about five hours sleep in two days. And if the video does work, you'll say, yeah, that looks like a guy who's only had five hours sleep in two days. So if I fall asleep, it's not boring questions. It's not Emily making points I don't agree with. It's because I'm tired. But that's because there's been so much on the aisle lately, as Emily says. We've wrapped up Scraps and Scrolls for now. That was with uh, Victorian, Victorian 1, and also did some wrapping up some reviewing of all the POVs we didn't get from a preview from George. So just reminding us of where these people are and what might be coming up. To be honest with you, most of it comes up in these episodes anyway, but it's nice to do it all at once. So that's Scraps and Scrolls for now. It will be back, but uh, that's gone. I got to listen to that episode actually and uh, really enjoyed it. I listened to it on my my drive back from up north and was just loving oh, the whole thing. So strong recommend from me. <laughs> oh, good. Thank <laughs> Go you. Go check it out. Well, while you're away, I had to scratch my brains for something to put out last week. I came up with doing a Sporkle Spectacular, again, with a difference because that was also recorded. Much easier because I didn't have to have my face on screen. Just recorded the uh, the screen there. So that was okay. That did work. So step one is complete. And what I did, because I was on my own, was to do a challenge where I was trying to get three in a row above the average score for the, the Song of Ice and Fire Sporkle questions. Actually, I got a bit excited and I went further than three. But that has gone out today as of recording. So by the time you listen to this, that'll be with you. Hopefully it goes okay. Obviously, the video part is for patrons only. That's our little reward for everyone for being so nice and supportive to us. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. The audio-only version is already out for public feed as well. Uh, definitely let us know your scores if you've had a go at the quizzes because there are some good ones in there and again it's just a new different type of episode we're experimenting with so we can hopefully go further and further and get to live streaming and all that kind of stuff speaking of which emily you have some news to share with us yeah uh i'm really excited about this um hopefully we'll get this out to you before i appear um uh, mm. 
but I will be on Radio Westeros with our good friends Yoke Boy and Lady Guinevar coming up on Saturday, July 17th. The live stream will be at 5 p.m. Eastern, so that'll be 10 p.m. your time uh, over in the UK. But um, if you miss that, it's it's going to you know be out on, on YouTube and in podcast form later. We'll be talking all about Victorian Greyjoy and what he'll be up to in the Winds of Winter. So there's some nice thematic crossover yeah. from... Us talking about wins over here and uh, talking about uh, our fa- my favorite dumb kraken <laughs> over there. You know, if you're listening to that and it sparks any additional wins questions, please send them in. I'm sure I will. Yeah, that's great news. That'd be great. I'm sure all our listeners will be uh, tuning into the live stream. I'll definitely be trying my best. I'm sure we will. And we'll definitely try and get this one out. So you're not listening in retrospect. But either way, I'm sure you know about it because if you're listening to us, chances are you already listened to Radio Westeros, so you would have seen this good good news. So that's great. And not only that, but you will be having your interview episode here as well that will be coming for our patrons soon so even more happening on the patron side of things in fact there is more talk about there but we'll save that for later we've probably done enough (laughs) updating for now instead let's get to the thanking of our patrons before we get to our questions today yes yes uh so we want to thank our jade branches our green trunks our emerald trees uh that includes yeah we'll start with lady carolina blues welcome you're one of our newest patrons We've got screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt. We have the Gardener Queen. We've got Lomas Knight Rider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover. Grizzly M. Devora L. Glenn T. Aegon the Sixth. Brandy T. Lord Commander Namian Darklin. Kate M. Crystal F. And Virginia D. Not and, I'm not last. <laughs> and of course, Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes. Of course, I, I forget our space machine. Thank you, one. Thank you, all. We've had a lot of people joining, not only joining, but increasing. Like we've already had people who are already patrons increasing their tier level up to the upper tiers, which I think is an even bigger showing of generosity and definitely a, a nicer comment to us. So that's why we're making these extra steps of videos and other episodes and, and stuff like that. So hopefully that all goes well and you like it and there'll be more to come. But Let's actually get down to business because this one is going to be a long episode. Uh, No one hour answers today, I don't think. We've got nothing like the prologue (laughs) question this time, but still quite a lot. So Emily, would you like to just remind people of what we are doing just in case they've got no idea? Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't uh, caught the first several, we are doing our series of 100 questions about anything and everything The Winds of Winter. Um, This will be our fourth installment. So if you're just joining us now, make sure you go back and check out those other ones. If you've already caught us, you'll know that we're averaging about 10 episodes or 10 questions per episode. You know, some are deep dives into theories or specific storylines or POVs, um, including the very deep dive on the prologue last episode. Uh, Others are more of a general take or just our opinion, something we're looking forward to. So it's a great smattering. Yeah, and don't forget, we still want your questions, even though, as Emily says, we are kind of getting into the thick of it now. All the way up until after episode nine, you can still send in any questions, whether that's an adaption of something we've already answered, something that's sparked something in your mind, something completely new. We've got a list that far exceeds 100 now, so we've got room to juggle about. And we'd rather answer yours than ours, even though we do come up with cool ones ourselves. We'd rather answer yours. So you can always email us at either faces podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at me at sir buckley or at emily of the eerie or send a message on patreon or whatever you want to do you know how to do it you can get in touch and one extra thing actually before we get to some answers which we also really appreciate being sent in definitely keep them coming for 
every episode we do next time we do one of these uh, for part five we'll be adding an extra section at the end just a little one just an extra 10 or 15 minutes which we're calling the patron station so we're actually getting more than 100 questions and that's going to be a kind of more relaxed kind of fun type questions not so much to do with the books themselves we're just going to be taking elements i won't spoil it too much you'll see it next time <laughs> but again that will be for patrons only so it's another extra bonus because they are so lovely to us so watch out for that one next time awesome i think that'll be like a great way to go into episode five because we're like nearing the halfway point add a little exactly yeah 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 so um, before we, we get into our answering of the questions today, we have some listener answers as well. Um, as we said, please, you know, in addition to sending us more questions, we love to hear your takes on this stuff um, and we want to, you know, feature some things that, that people say. Um, before I get into that, I also really want to shout out and apologize to uh, Jonathan Taylor Gray from Twitter. He also asked a very similar question to Willard's question number 27 from last episode regarding the fate of Loris Tyrell. So one, great minds think alike. Two, we will do a, certainly a better job of kind of looking for duplicates and making sure that we're giving everyone credit for, for sending in these great, great questions. Yeah, it does happen. These things do overlap. And so if we ever do uh, miss out naming you, if you hear a question that's very similar to yours, you can always just tell us and say, hey, I asked that as well. And we'll double check and we'll give you a shout out next time. Our spreadsheet is, is massive. The spreadsheet is getting out of control. <laughs> We're a little bit frightened of it. We don't want to look it in the eye. So mm-hmm. do forgive us if we if we mix anything. But as for answers this time round, or for last time round perhaps. So going back to question 21, which was about the prologue. Don't worry, not my answer. It's not going to take an hour long. This instead <laughs> is from Aegon the Sixth, our friend and patron like we just mentioned. Uh, he says that he would, like to, he would have liked the POV to be from Sybil Spicer, like we did suggest specifically because maybe we would find out more about uh, Maggie the Frog because Sybil is supposedly descended, which is one of those things I thought about about 10 minutes after we finished recording. I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> there's this whole other thing. I could have gone for an hour and a half. But, uh, that that happens. Beat me to it. It always happens. Yeah. Every question. We could do a 200 if we wanted to, just following up on things we missed. Right, right. A good answer, good uh, suggestion. <laughs> um, so our friend Yogi also said that he subscribes to the theory, uh, which he calls the vanilla theory, uh, that Forley Presser will be the POV. And, you know, I mean, I think that there's certainly uh, some likelihood there. It would be interesting to see the perspective of a Lannister bannerman if that happens. That's definitely a, a, a prominent one, yeah. Uh, another pick was from Micah, who our good friend Micah is always giving good questions and answers. He suggests that Red Walder Frey is his pick for the prologue POV, which is a good option. I I don't think we did consider. I think we missed that one out. And he says that's because it's another kid who probably just wanted to be a knight when he grows up and has all these dreams. And instead, he's going to die for having the wrong last name because not all Freys are evil, just the majority. And uh, the children certainly are more innocent than the adults. It could be the last name that gets him. He could just be stood in the wrong place and a wolf comes out of the trees. Either one is a possibility. Uh, I, I do like that suggestion because we were talking about the themes of prologue linking to the main book. The main book's probably going to have more than a few children dying before their time. So that definitely works. Good suggestion. Yeah. Micah actually has written quite a bit on this theory and we had a long conversation about it and then when I started looking at how long our, our answers were going to be for that question I I didn't include it but I'm glad we could shout it out here because I, I really love this and and you know check that out on Twitter if uh, you haven't mm. read that yet 
Uh, question 22 from last episode where we talked about um, Hodor and Shireen and those moments from the show and how they might uh, be similar or differ in the books. Lo, the links uh, shared a really great Twitter thread uh, about the potential parallels between the two events and what they might say about the kings that these two characters are close to. So, you know, uh, Bran for Hodor and Stannis for Shireen. That's low underscore the underscore links on Twitter. There's a really great thread there from March 2nd of last year, 2020, uh, if you want to read it. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Lowe also mentions that uh, these two characters fit the the kind of poor little things, brave little souls trope uh, for disabled characters and uh, references how other characters' treatment of these two becomes kind of a morality measuring stick for the reader uh, and, you know, wants to know, you know, how will we end up judging the king or the future king who sacrifices these characters in the coming books? Yeah, that's a, that is a good thread. And I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm sure we can put in a link to a, a Twitter thread in the in the episode description. There's actually a few things today that we're going to be oh, yeah. putting links in for. So <laughs> keep an eye out for, for those and definitely for this one from below because that is a, a really good thread. And there's other things to be read there as well. We'll actually be getting a question from Lo today as well. So that's even better. Sticking with that question though, the Hedge Knight, he also reminded us about Chloe from Girls Gone Canon, hinting that the Hodor slash hold the door theory in the books that maybe will reference the the actual door itself being made of oak and iron which could be a reference to the connection to Sir Duncan the Tall which would be pretty cool I think we'd all like to see that I love that and you know it could be so subtle but I think everyone would be <gasps> yeah that's you know, the kind of I, thing we jump on I love that stuff from George so absolutely um, okay, so question 26, uh, which was sent in by Micah about the themes of vengeance coming up in the Winds of Winter. Uh, I actually posted a follow-up tweet about this and we got a ton of responses, so we'll zip through those as, as quickly as we can. Yeah, we said at the time that would be a good one for you to, to send response in and you proved us right. John's Woe from Twitter says, I'll read it out for you here, I totally agree about the unhealthy cycle of vengeance and how George treats that theme in the series. One of my favourite passages in the book is Ilaria Sands' anti-vengeance speech. Uh, but that said, John's Woe doesn't think there's will have much internal conflict when Danny roasts Carl Jacko. Hard <laughs> agree. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but I yeah, also... I... <laughs> I also really like the shout out to Alaria's speech. If you've listened to Scraps and Scrolls, you know that was a, a favorite moment of dance. We do love Alaria here. I love that. Yeah, I was so sad that that was not how her character went in the show because that was just such a great moment from the books. Yeah, uh, so Aswaf Readthrough on Twitter says uh, that the themes of unhealthy cycles of vengeance make him not really long for revenge. Uh, I think a lot of us felt that way, that... You know, you, you're looking forward to these moments and then all of a sudden George kind of twists the knife and makes you feel a lot of sympathy for the character all of a sudden who you've been hating this whole time. They also say that uh, they're looking forward to Littlefinger's comeuppance and some justice for Jane. Uh, I, I know you're not looking forward to Littlefinger's comeuppance at all, right? <laughs> the book they all take. I think there's an eighth book. I think it is only that. There's one chapter and that's it. <laughs> Get our get our fan fiction going. Justice for Jane's a good symbol. I think we should all we should make some banners of justice. Yeah, for Jane. I love that. I love that. We we should totally do that. Uh, as you said, it was it was Micah who originally submitted that question. He had quite a list going, some of which we crossed over of our quick list we did, some of which uh, we didn't think of, such as the second Red Wedding. He said specifically Raymond Frey getting his throat cut by Stoneheart. Lots of thematic connections there. Stuff about Axel Florin. Um, and he does project that things, certain things that, as you say, we quite want, will be undercut with tragedies, such as 
maybe Sybil Westling's death, which, okay, that's great, but it might also mean all her children, who are largely innocent, will go as well. I mentioned Asher versus Clayton, which I think we touched on as well. So good stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, essays and essays could be written about the vengeance we want to see for Axel Florent, but we won't go go there today. Um, so Asha Not Yara on Twitter says that uh, George has ruined vengeance for her. So that's kind of a theme we're hearing from our responses today. Uh, she says that it even impacts how she views the theme of vengeance in other series, such as the season finale of The Handmaid's Tale, which, you know, I think her reaction was a bit different uh, <laughs> thanks to the influence of, of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Hmm. I'm glad you read that username out because I was looking at that and I thought, what's Asha Natyra? Uh, oh, okay, Asha Not. <laughs> Yara, that makes much more sense. That's about yeah. <laughs> uh, another one here. Another username I was probably going to struggle with. Obinator. That's quite a good one. Says he's looking forward to Cersei killing all of her enemies in the Sept and then Ramsay getting owned. So probably quite a show-influenced view there, but also hard to disagree with. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I think, you know, especially about Ramsay getting owned, I think, you know, that's universal show or book. Uh, Yagi98 actually also agrees, also thinking about Ramsay. He says that he hopes that it's Barbary Dustin who feeds him to his dogs, getting re- uh, revenge for Domerick. KB Krushak also agrees, vengeance upon Ramsay and wins, please. So, you yeah. know, we got a lot of people saying vengeance doesn't feel great, but if, it, if we're going to do it, let's get Ramsay. <laughs> You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who isn't quite keen for that, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, one more question that we got some answers for was from number 27, which you'll remember was about Loris. Again, it's another answer for Mike, who's so good at sending these in. Uh, very similar to what we came up with, actually. He doesn't think his injuries are life-threatening, uh, at least they're not as bad as they're made out to be, but suggests, like I think I did, uh, he might have a burned face or some kind of disfigurement that will... Well, I said it is just a nice theme because he's grown up as the pretty boy. He's the Tyrell. But Mike also suggests it maybe will be a reminder of what recklessness can do, which is probably a good reminder. But he thinks he will wind up in King's Landing just so that he can actually eventually die with Marjorie anyway. So at least he gets a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Micah actually live tweeted our last episode when he was listening to it. Oh, so yes. uh, thank you so much because cool. that led to a lot of great responses. And anyone else who wants to do that, feel free. I will. I yeah, will I'm pretty sure that mine was your first tweets for, for, for nuggets of gold. <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty sure that's never happened before. Yeah, just a huge heartfelt thanks for all of you uh, from here uh, on the aisle. We've enjoyed, you know, answering the questions ourselves, but it's a lot more fun to hear your opinions too. You know, it, it that certainly makes answering more questions uh, down the road more fun when I know we'll, we'll hear from you guys as well. So if you are listening or watching today, feel free to tweet at Sir Buckley or at Emily of the Erie with your thoughts. Yeah, please do. We do, we do really enjoy that. But we, it's not just an answer podcast today. We do actually have some more questions to tackle. So it's probably time that we begin. And I have yeah. the honour of kicking us off, actually, with question number 31. This is one of my own as well, if I do say so myself. If Westeros had a newspaper, could you give me one of the most misguided headlines that they would be running with during wins? And you can get a bonus point here, Emily, for if you come up with a cool newspaper name i'm gonna have a go as well all right well you're, you're this one proved that you were the writer because i i love this <laughs> question but i struggled with it uh, i loved it more because i think the themes uh are so interesting you know george does such a good job of sprinkling rumors and ill-informed gossip throughout his story you know certainly they don't have the kind of press that we do in modern times but he still finds ways to kind of 
bring in these kind of misguided rumors. You know, there's there's Stannis's letter, which actually there's a lot of truth to that, but not everyone necessarily believes it. Um, there's rumor, all the different rumors going around about Ned's involvement in Robert's death or, you know, what Ned did to betray Joffrey of varying degrees of truth. There's all sorts of bullshit spread by the phrase about how <laughs> Rob totally deserved the Red Wedding. He broke the guest right first. He's an evil wolf man, etc. So uh, if Westeros had a newspaper, just imagine how much further these types of things could spread. Yeah, that's a good point. I always think about this kind of thing as coming in later, like you said, with Rob and Daenerys. But actually, it has been baked in from the beginning with Stannis' letter and Ned's death. And there's misdirection everywhere. There's outright slander. It's just part of the series. So that's a good point. I do think, though, Daenerys is still the largest victim of slander and rumour in the story so far. We've seen it a lot outside the Yunkish camps uh, and everything they've said. It's spread all the way over to Old Town already and she hasn't even moved yet. So I doubt that's going anywhere soon. It's probably only going to increase the closer she comes to Restoros. Everyone's going to be trying to disparage her and kind of ruin her reputation before she even arrives, especially after the big changes that she is currently making to Essos and will make tests as we assume in this book so i can see something like from maybe a publication like the volunteen voice uh, with a headline mad fire queen leads mass slave revolt in volantis which we know won't really <laughs> be the case but you could see if you're not there you could definitely see how they can angle it like that mm-hmm. or similarly from the bravosi bulletin Blood Baver brings Bedlam to Bravos. We know they like alliteration in newspapers. Uh, and I'm actually pretty interested to see the effect that Daenerys, or maybe more importantly Daenerys's people, her group, will have on these two cities. Or maybe others. She might go down to kind of southwest Essos. But I think definitely these two are the, the most likely. Volantis, that seems like it's going to erupt anyway, even if she wasn't going to get there, but we think she will. And even if she's not there, it's going to erupt in her name. That's why it's erupting. We've already seen that in Dance. Now, to be fair, slaves breaking free, that is pretty cool. We like that. But we can be sure there's going to be multiple atrocities and other bad things happening that will get labelled as Daenerys's fault, even though that's not true, and we know, but we know that's how it works because we've already seen it in Marine. So she's going to arrive. All this thing is going to happen already. She's going to have to deal with them, but hopefully she won't stick around quite as long to do it as she has in Marine. Mm-hmm. Bravos is actually more interesting to me because I'm not 100% that Danny personally goes there. It's a bit out of the way, probably, not necessarily, but probably. But of all the cities we've seen, Bravos seems to have its stuff together more than all the other places we've been, except maybe White Harbor. White Harbor's cool. Yeah, you know, it's obviously, you know, closer to Westeros than a lot of the destinations she's been so far. Um, even though it hasn't been in her own POV, we've seen a larger number of minor characters in Bravos or that are Bravosi. The amount of time that we spend there in other characters' POV, it all adds up as this being, you know, maybe a more interesting place for things to happen from the reader's perspective compared to a city we have heard about but haven't haven't seen as much. Uh, yeah, so I'm wondering what, I mean, we've got a good idea what it's going to look like in Volantis, probably just looks like chaos. But what does it actually look like in Bravos? Because I don't think it'll be quite as, as obvious, I, and I don't think that entire gigantic contingent of all the Dothraki and all the Miranese and everyone else, I don't think they all go to Bravos. I think it, it would be Danny herself flying up on a dragon, or maybe she sends... Tyrion, that was something we discussed a lot in Scraps and Scrolls, especially in regards to long-lost Lannister possibilities. But it will still mess them up at least a little bit because the world is going to be very aware of, of Danny, and when she arrives, they're not going to be 
too welcoming to either her or her group or whatever they've been up to and what's been happening across the continent because she does bring such change. Yeah, you know, I would be curious uh, to see how much influence like the Iron Bank will have on on press. Mm-hmm. Talking about press and rumor mill, not not specific to Daenerys necessarily, but they haven't been on page a ton. You know, we've seen Tycho Nestoris show up in a couple of places, but that's about it. Um, but it's clear that their interest in Westeros is significant. There's, uh, you know, they're in this position to potentially kingmake. You know, they've been speaking with Stannis. They tried to get promises out of Cersei. It's hard to imagine that kind of influence not impacting headlines. Uh, you know, if they could not only financially back a candidate for the Iron Throne, but actually push or influence public opinion and which could then lead to actual military support that follows, why wouldn't they do that and, you know, hedge their investment that way? Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even figured the Iron Bank into my my wanderings at all. I had <laughs> been thinking more about uh, probably some Sea Lord stuff coming out of the woodwork because we haven't really got to see that kind of thing yet. Uh, again, especially given the history of the pact surrounding Daenerys and Viserys, uh, there is the possibility of her crossing over Aya's storyline or maybe the remnants of Aya's storyline. She's already gone to Westeros, possibly, and there is the constant draw of that red door but we have a question about that later so we won't dive too far in i think you mentioned the phrase earlier that's a very good call especially after our suspicions about that prologue i mean that that whole thing will be mostly lannister based but we can be sure that the phrase they're going to take up the call maybe they'll do it in mayhaps monthly i'm sure they send that out that must have a lot a lot of people on the email list that one that'll take quite a while but i i think they could run with the headline spirit of evil king returns with army of wolves uh, don't worry though frayed stand ready to protect the realm protect all the innocent yeah i could see them doing that propaganda fray propaganda yeah yeah fray propaganda i'm also interested i don't have a headline suggestion here because you're really the writer but i was thinking about this uh you know, I think it's it's interesting to me to see how the headlines from Mayhaps Monthly or from something from the Riverlands might change a ton depending on, you know, the balance of power shifting. You know, are we hearing a lot of pro-fray propaganda? Will that, you know, be bolstered by the Lannisters or whoever's in King's Landing? Will will the Blackfish in, insert some influence as well and potentially get a counter-narrative going? You know, we don't actually have uh, real press, but I, I, I think we'll see some of these themes regardless in, in wins for sure of, of, you know, people vying not just for military control of the Riverlands, but, you know, who can sway and influence people. I think we could get a good one out of what's happening up at the wall because there's plenty happening up at the wall. Uh, at the very least, they're going to start out the book thinking they need to choose a new Lord Commander again. They've only just done it, so it's back to the voting kettle. Uh, I don't know if the Night's Watch has its own internal newsletter. It should do. The Wall Weekly, maybe. That would do it. <laughs> but they could run such features as Cotter Pike or Dennis Malister. Who has your best interests? Take the quiz inside plus his 200 recipes for ice cubes. Uh, there's not a lot to put in the uh, Wall Weekly, probably. <laughs> Things kind of stay the same for 8,000 years, but they've got to think of something. Uh, mm-hmm. So some, something's going to happen up there. If we were to go south to King's Landing, they've probably got like a 1,000 different newspapers, but we could get one from out of the Sept of Baylor. We could get the Sparrow Squawker. That might be a new one. They might say something like, miracles, unnecessary. Ignore everything else going on everywhere in the world multiple trials that's the only sign of a true religion look for the ones holding multiple trials all the time that's the one to follow <laughs> absolutely um i also thought uh kingsguard returns to full strength with sir strong because we love a good pun 
That's a good one. Yeah, everyone, all the writers in Westeros want the pun. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, if they've got, I don't know if they've got like an anchorman in um, in King's Landing, but I could see him on the six o'clock news. Uh, I for one welcome back our Cersei Lannister overlords. Uh, sorry, no, that's Targaryen overlords, or is it Blackfires? Or yeah, there's another Targaryen. There could be several different editions of that having to change every day in this book. <laughs> you hear that little news chime, do 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 do, like yeah. breaking news. <laughs> You know, we could see something like from hero to zero, the waning star of Loras Tyrell, uh, you know, co- <laughs> shadow written by Cersei. Yeah, that's yeah. Writing by C. Lannister. No, I make mm-hmm. uh, no, no, could get through. I don't know if there's a gossip column going on, but they could easily put out, you know, did we just see Cersei Lannister and Neuron Greyjoy getting out of the same litter together? Or there could be, any of these could be very quickly go, oh God, we're on fire again. <laughs> That's the way it could end. I didn't really expect to like laugh so much when we were going through this, this question, but I've had a great time. <laughs> I have I have just two more quick hitters. We've got uh, go Little little Fingers Bastard, the true story of Elaine Stone that I assume would not be true at all. <laughs> expose, fake expose. Exactly. Or if, you know, if Euron's influencing the press, I could see something like Maesters summon Great Kraken. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't my Kraken. Ignore what my sigil is. It was the Maesters. The magic-hating Maesters did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Fake a good news. one. Yeah. Fake news. Um. <laughs> well, this is definitely a question everyone can get involved with. This is, I'm sure many, many people out there will be doing an even better job than we did. So send those in, please. Please do. Yeah. All right. So our next question comes from our patron. Er, pa- patron. <laughs> our patron, Aegon the Sixth. He says, I'm wondering if you too think that George has another rug to pull out from under his readers. Nothing forecasted like Euron bringing down the wall or X steals a dragon. Uh, does he have another like Ned beheading, Red wedding, John dying, a loss or event that fundamentally changes the direction of the story? What would that have to be uh, to actually shock us? So yeah, I think there's got to be at least, you know, one more twist that we're not predicting. You know, we've been sitting here theorizing for a long time, but none of us are the author. And so, I, you know, I we might have seen a lot of foreshadowing for certain things, but it's in his style. I think I think something's absolutely going to blindside us as well. Mm. I know we've been waiting a long time for the next book, and that's given us tons of time to theorize. But, you know, again, we're not in George's head. Yeah, that's true. Like you say, we have had a long time, and this is a this is a tough question because we're trying to guess the unguessable. By definition, makes it hard to answer. But to be blunt, just to be straight up, yes, I absolutely do expect George will do it again. If he does it every other book, I think it's pretty safe to say he'll do it in this one as well, especially in the one he himself has labelled like the darkest of some pretty dark books to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're nearing the climax of the series. This is the point in classic storytelling where you lose big characters. You you know, Snape kills Dumbledore, for example. The the plot armor that we've been seeing certain characters, especially out of the POV characters, have is, is getting chinks and characters that we knew were safe in you know Storm. We're not so sure they're safe anymore. You know, Winds. We know it's going to be probably the darkest book. We we know that much. But uh, part of what will make it feel that way to the reader is that there. Are going to be these unexpected losses yeah that that is a, a really good point especially on the kind of 
the narrative, the nature of getting closer to the ends mean means it does narrow and you'd think it would be a bit easier to to guess like you're saying but George he's not supposed to be going off on unknown tangents that's the theory I'm not saying that's what's going to happen because we do know George but there will be some of that but not as much so we should be able to kind of point our way to the bigger shocks theoretically but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true but we do have obviously general ideas on pretty much every plot point because we are that nerdy and you see most of the answers here in these episodes anyway but i do think for all of that plotting and theory crafting that everyone is so good at out in the fandom and our own preview chapter analyzing as well we still basically know nothing really i mean i tried to make that point on the last scraps and scrolls uh, with with that victorian chapter this book could go anywhere we've got no idea so Agen's question about changing the direction of the story, that's the most interesting angle to me. I think some of the things we've guessed about or are expecting to see will happen differently to what we've guessed, whether that is a, a Loris or Shreen or really could be anyone. But there's also things we can't even begin to guess at because we just don't have the foundation yet. We don't have the background. So I'm very much looking forward to finding out, obviously, like everyone else is. But in terms of changing the story, again, it is impossible to predict, of course, but I think we know that every aspect of this book is going to be laced in tragedy. There's going to be very, very low amount of high points. Some of that will be really deep and emotional character stuff. Some of it will be more like raw and physical and harsh and happening to people maybe we don't know as well happening in the background, so to speak. But we know it's coming. There's going to be a steady wave of seeing it again among the small folk and happening in general, but we'll also get these really big tentpole moments that do take our breath away and not in the the good way. Uh, I think they come in two versions probably. Things that we just don't want to happen, uh, whether that's a beloved character's death, a Brienne, for example. We don't want to see that. Woe betide us if anything happened to Gilly or Tommen or Marcella or any of those types of people. We could go on and on and on. That list is nearly endless. But the other type is things that really put our heart into conflict, which I think this book is really going to concentrate on. as kind of bad things done by people that we still quite like, or maybe even necessary things that we really wish weren't necessarily. It could just be a good old-fashioned mistake, like what we're thinking about what Bran could do with Hodor or even Mira. Um, I have mentioned that Dark Stark idea so many times before. I wish it wasn't true, but it really could be. A, their Bran's a great candidate, and the others are as well, for something of this nature. Again, maybe it's a Brienne pushed into something by a new oath she has to swear she doesn't want to do it, but she does. We can really feel that conflict within her. We all have our favourites, and many of them are still going to be on very different sides. We haven't had to witness them going up against each other much lately because in the midpoint of the series, they've all expanded. They're not near each other. But now again, because we're narrowing, everyone's being pushed back together, that will come back like we had back at the Blackwater mm-hmm. where the lines can be blurred and it just looks like everyone's going to lose and no one wins, which I think could easily be the message of this book. Yeah, absolutely. I even think like, I'm just in personal denial that that even if Tyrion goes bad, I'm like so in denial about how bad he could really go. But uh, (laughs) him, you know, murdering Jamie or something, I'd probably be pretty surprised by that, even though I don't think other people would be. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Okay, so my ideas, if we're trying to predict the unpredictable, uh, (laughs) great. (laughs) Um, So we know 
we all know that there's this tenuous situation that we expect to find Jamie, Brienne, and Stoneheart in at the top of wins, but each character feels like they have a lot left to do. There's personal motivations, prophecies, goals, foreshadowing of events to come. You know, with, with Jamie, we've got the Valencar prophecy, a redemption arc, the potential for him to come full circle with Bran like he did in the show, which I, I don't think people have talked about quite as much. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, brainy shippers out there who would argue that there's unfinished business between Jamie and Brienne just from the shipping perspective. Brienne has unfulfilled oaths. She's, you know, also the heir to Tarth. Hmm. There are many, many theories about Stoneheart as well and what her moves and wins are going to be. You know, I think us readers are invested in further stories with each of these three characters. And so there's almost this mental block, like something's going to happen. They're all going to get out of this trial. Okay. Like someone's going to pull a fast one or... You know, maybe someone will die to save these three big characters, but to the point that I think maybe we've talked ourselves into thinking that it's all going to be okay. But so I think from that perspective, it would still feel really shocking, you know, especially if both Jamie and Brienne are killed by a merciless Stoneheart. I, I just don't think the fandom's predicting it to get that dark with these characters who, you know, feel like there's more to do. Hmm. Um, we also, you know, if we're talking about evil prevailing in a really horrific way, I think that Euron getting a kill on a beloved POV would really hurt. Um, you know, right now he's in Old Town. Like, I really hope Sam is safe, but we have no idea where he's going to go and he's pretty mobile. Um, so, so predicting where he might just pop in out of nowhere and cause some <laughs> serious damage is hard for us to do. That, that falls into the predicting the unpredictable for me. Um, you know, we also obviously saw him in the show Kill a Dragon. I, you know, to me, that's, it's hard for me to connect all the dots that would get us there in wins. But, uh, you know, potentially there's some truth behind that. And I think any dragon dying would, would feel pretty wild to us. They're like the mm-hmm. nukes of Westeros. So to have one just taken out of the equation, uh, even if even if there's foreshadowing, even if we see it coming, I still think that would feel really shocking. Definitely reading it you know i think stoneheart bringing about the deaths of any of her family you know having having her vengeance take her too far to the point where she doesn't recognize them anymore or she runs into john who in life she didn't have a whole lot of affection for that that certainly would feel really shocking and it would it would tip her past okay you're kind of morally gray like you seem pretty you, you know you're, you're you're pretty vengeful but like you're attacking phrase and you're attacking all these people we want to see die so to see that tip into okay, now you're just this, you know, vengeance machine killing anyone in your path would, would you know, be be kind of an uh, interesting direction for things to go. And I think even though we all know it's coming, I think that Shireen is still going to feel like a red wedding or a Ned beheading on an emotional level. You know, we, we know it's coming, but it's just going to rip our hearts out, I think. The final point I have on this is not so much uh, an actual prediction, but uh, I'm excited to see the fallout of something like this and how that throws off kind of our plotters or our schemers, our our little fingers, our Varuses who, you know, always know what's going on and always seem like they're one step ahead of everyone else or that they, oh, I totally had a contingency plan for that. How are they going to be thrown off by an event like this that maybe they were not a part of the planning? You know, there are so many more players in the game now and Littlefinger up in the veil, Varus off kind of doing his own thing, helping Tyrion, coming back to King's Landing. There's a, there's stuff that they could have missed and, and could be blindsided by. So interested to see that. Yeah, I really like that point about the plotters. This is like the opposite. Littlefinger says he likes chaos, but really this is going to be the opposite of a plotter's paradise because you can't base it on anything. Everything's going to change week by week in this book uh, in certain places. And this, this is like the biggest uproar in pandemonium 
Westeros has like ever seen. It's never been this bad. So all the plans are going to go out, which breeds all these different things that can happen. Like we're saying, we can't guess because who knows what could affect what and where it leads. And only George knows the answers to that. But I think the bottom line is, however it comes about, this book will definitely have these moments. You've just demonstrated for us there how many there could be. Uh, they can hurt us in different ways, definitely, whether it is a serene or just something like that Shireen we know it's coming sure but there'll still be a, a level of oh no they actually did do it like uh, I've been expecting this for years I've known it but reading it is a different a different experience so there, there will be betrayal there'll be murder or heartbreak and all of it really some even darker stuff that we don't want to see unfortunately will also be included will it be Davos witnessing the others actually come into the world of humanity or will it be John not being our John anymore him not coming back will it be Melisandre versus Bran or whatever the Starks get up to maybe even moving against each other without knowing it it could be anything but it's coming and those those big moments from from the series that we've already got uh they do involve the ones closest to our heart generally there's other ones but really i think we all know the big ones are the ned they're the red wedding etc john's death probably originally so we know who we should probably be looking at for real heartbreak uh, and Egan asked what it has to look like in order to shock the reader i think the easy answer is simply to say something that would go against one of the major expectations of the series you were saying about arcs and maybe someone just doesn't get that far maybe they just don't get the ending i mean there's probably not enough room for everyone to get where we think they should well, be not, going that's it. not how real life works either and i think george is you know, very gritty and realistic in that way you know not everyone gets the the happy ending or, or not even the happy ending but not everyone gets redeemed not everyone gets to say the final thing that they want to say to an important character and you're we're gonna see that happen here where oh great it would have it would have been so cool if this happened but they're dead now or yeah. they're never going to see each other again and in a way that's even harder to read as well if someone gets within a mile of someone they need to reunite with and they they never do like i and catelyn for example with the red wedding that that was a, an aspect of that that doesn't get the attention it should do sometimes <laughs> right. but i think the root of the true answer is just it's going to be something painful to our core characters and everyone changes what that that means to everyone everyone has their favorites but that's the situation we're dealing with now that bittersweet ending that george has warned us about it is starting now and all that we want unfortunately we shall not receive just to make it real glum only on question two and really take it dark for everybody but blame george well, not us we got to we got to laugh in question one so we're really yeah. bringing you a little of everything today yeah, we've we've tackled both high and low, so no complaints from anybody. I think the next question is a little bit of both, right? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Let's get to it. This is question number 33 overall. This is from Willard the Slumbery, one of our patrons, so thank you for that. This is a good one. This is a bit of a tough one as well. He asks, will any pregnancies be brought to light in the winds of winter? And like I said, initially when I read this, I found it quite hard to start. But then I kind of got going with a bit. And I, I know you did as well, Emily. Basically, and again, it's another hard one to predict because pregnancies could come from literally anywhere. Any couple in the story and George could just surprise us without there being any foreshadowing or rhyme to the reason. We're sure to get new characters as well. Who knows if one of those is pregnant? So that could easily come up. I've no doubt it will happen because George is good with those kind of 
details. It doesn't just stop filling in the background because we're getting the the big important headlines. They're still going to happen. That is how the world works, even when the world is in jeopardy like this one is. Exactly. I mean, we know birth rates tend to go down when there's the fighting men are away at war. It's not like, but it's not like pregnancy just disappears. It's not like that's universal birth control. So we have come up with a really good list of potential candidates. If we want to go with someone who just like makes sense in story, I will start with Alice Karstark. She's newly married, seems somewhat happily so, despite her family's attempted intervention. I imagine she's, if anything, kind of keen to get pregnant to both secure her position further. And well, again, she just seems somewhat interested in her husband. We'll see. Yeah, rare, but it does happen, in fact, in, in the Seven Kingdoms. That's a really good point about her position and wanting to secure that, because obviously the cast ducks are all up in the air, and her position is definitely not secure, or wasn't anyway, so that I hadn't thought that. That's a good point. But I like Alice as a choice anyway, because... I really like that being a kind of a symbol of this new generation of cast arcs. The old ones are, are done. They were rubbish. Let's get going with a new a new bunch. They can be the beginning of this new unified house that we saw formed in dance. The house that John built, essentially. A new <laughs> era for the North. And considering the geography as well, that could make for some interesting drama slash urgency for what happens when the others come down from the wall now carhold won't be an immediate danger it's not like right in the way like last half is they're kind of set off to the east a bit but they're not exactly safe either and you're not going to hang around if you do know that the others are coming especially if they are after some more babies to steal after craster's supply dried up but we'll be talking about that later yeah i don't really want to think about that too deeply at this point (laughs) yeah that's it that's another dark road to go down Uh uh-huh uh, one of the options I thought of was Cersei, Cersei Lannister. That would be pretty interesting. Obviously, it's the direction that the show went in, for better or worse. I don't think we do get a repeat in the books myself, but it would be interesting, more interesting in the books than it was in the show. First off, depending on the timing, because Cersei would have very legitimate questions on who the father is. She's got more than one kettle black to choose from. Again, Jamie, maybe depending on the timing. Euron, possibly, we've discussed that coming up. Hopefully hey, not. Moon boy, maybe. for all we know, right? <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. Um, we're all definitely hoping it's not Euron. We'd probably choose Moonboy over Euron uh, because we know what Euron is and we just don't want to see that. Although, no. having said that, it would be pretty monumental for two members of the Great Houses to get together and produce a child because that doesn't actually happen all that often historically. That's why Robert's Rebellion slash Sovereign Ambitions was such a big deal because it's not the, the done thing. And these two families, Lannisters and Greyjoys, are neighbours and historical rivals as well. We never get to see them really interact in the series, but historically they've had quite a lot to do with each other. So a half Lannister, half Greyjoy child would be a first, I'm pretty sure on saying that. Yeah, and I think you make a great point here. We, you know, in the previous generation, we had some big house marriages. We had, you know, Targaryen Martell. We had Baratheon Lannister, Stark Tully, Aaron Tully. Really, it was just the Greyjoys and the Tyrells who were left out of Hmm. these big moments. Uh, In this generation, there have been some attempts and some betrothals, but nothing that's really come of it yet. We've we've had, um, you know, we've had some potential betrothals with, Stark and Baratheon that didn't go forward and then that did go forward with Stark and Lannister with Sansa Tyrion. We had, you know, Lannister aka Baratheon <laughs> uh, marriages <laughs> to House Tyrell twice. Thir- thrice if you count uh, Renly in there as a Baratheon. We've had yeah. House Martell 
promised via Marcella and Tristane. Um, so, so all these are kind of there, but again, nothing has come of it. We've had absolutely no pregnancies yet, uh, given the ages of these folks, it kind of makes sense. So I guess the closest we have is maybe a, a Targaryen or, or Black, Blackfire, really Martell thing that could happen. We've, we've had other Targ Martell alliances go up in flames. So I think if Cersei actually got pregnant, uh, by Euron, uh, or someone from another great house, uh, it, it would be the first baby in quite some time, uh, from two great houses but ugh, please still no no that's not that's, it's interesting but it's not uh something we want to see the other interesting aspect of it to me would be that we'd get i assume we would get cersei's internal thoughts about being a mother again because we know that's obviously a huge huge part of her character something she obviously thought was in her past that would kind of reignite um something dormant within her uh, even i mean i could see her very quickly convincing herself Maybe not doing the math so so quickly, but just saying, no, it's definitely Jamie's, it's definitely Jamie's. No one mentioned the word kettle black, it's definitely Jamie's. But either way, even if she did do that, getting the initial reaction from her when she found out, I think would be a great read, especially how she balances it against the return of Marcella coming, she's coming up from the south. It could happen after she loses Marcella and Tommen, like we think will happen. That would make it even more uh, huge and interesting. Again, given what's important to her as a person and the fact that she had to hide the truth of the first three children's birth before there's that relationship with her aging body that really kind of finally started to get through to her a bit in dance and like i said this could allow her to recapture some of her youth or maybe she can see it as like starting again but as i said i personally don't think this one comes true uh emily would you agree with that overall yeah, I, I I agree. I think it could happen, but I kind of think it would just complicate and muddy her storyline. She's got so much going on already that, that it just seems like extra, you know, a hat on a hat. Yeah, there's, there's too much to do in that city, I think, and with mm-hmm. Valenquire and everything else. Someone else, another big character who is possible, but again, I probably don't think it happens, is Daenerys. I don't think we need to explain what a big deal this would be to the fandom definitely in terms of prophecies and all that stuff and what it might mean for that uh emily what do you think yeah i mean this whenever we talk about daenerys getting pregnant we have to think about you know the fact that she doesn't think that that's going to be possible but uh it always reminds me of one of my favorite little exchanges from uh late in the show simply because john finally says what i'd been thinking or wondering about for years so daenerys tells john oh i can't get pregnant you know, she asks who told her that. She says, oh, the witch who killed my husband. And he replies, has it occurred to you that she might not be a reliable source of information? <laughs> and I was like screaming at my TV, like, thank you, John. Oh, my God, someone finally said it. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the, there could be some truth to that. Obviously, you know, um, Miriam Mastura has some skill or some some mystical power. But, you know, that could have all just been hearsay <laughs> or just like to get in her head. <laughs> Don't trust Mary Mazda's headline or newspaper. She definitely could be lying. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's another thing I've just never bought in too much about the, the pregnancy stuff with Danny because we just don't know. Um, as for potential fathers, well... That could be anyone's guest for wins because we don't. She's going to meet a whole lot of people in this book as she crosses towards the west, and it's not like she's short of suitors now, is it? We've already seen in in dance. Number one, I'm hoping it's not Victorian. I hadn't actually thought of that before, but that's definitely these Greyjoy guys. We don't want to see any of them as dads. I don't think. Um, no. I very much doubt that she gets close enough to his dar again. I don't even know if he lasts long enough to see her. He might die before she even comes back. But she could reunite with Dario again he's also got to survive the 
Battle of Fire, but at least she would actually be up for that one instead of Hisdar. I think as long as it's not Jorah Mormont, that'd be the absolute bottom line for me. And it'd be one really hairy baby. No one wants to see that. <laughs> it would just be horrible for everyone. Yeah, I don't think there's like a ton of good options in the immediate foreground for not Danny. Really. You know, you brought up Dario. Um, so a little like trigger warning or sensitive topic warning here. But, you know, if you subscribe to the idea that Daenerys is not sick, uh, and that she's actually having a miscarriage at the end of Dance, then I think this would probably have to be Dario's child. I guess there's a very small chance it could be his Dars, but I don't think so. I'm not sure. The timing could work out, but I just don't know if they actually, you know, successfully consummated that situation. You know, so miscarriages are obviously really extremely painful, traumatic experience most of the time. Um, and we know that uh it seems like danny might not fully realize she's having one so hopefully she's saved from a little bit of that pain but the silver lining here is that it does indicate if this is what's happening that she can get pregnant you know to have a miscarriage you have to first be pregnant obviously we have to see if danny can have a viable pregnancy um but at least we know that it could be possible in the future now yeah, that was a, a thing we spoke about quite a lot, that that debate in her final dance chapter. That was in one of those four and a half hour episodes or the five hour episode of Scraps and Scrolls. So we gave that a lot of a lot of attention. I'm more interested in, in that realistic kind of physical take rather than the prophecy stuff. I'd be more interested in Danny's actual health and whether she's physically possible. As you say, mm-hmm. miscarriage is painful and traumatic enough emotionally, but also can have a a long lasting so i'd be much more interested to see if it's actually just physically open to her again but like with cersei i would want to read the internal reaction how she well firstly would likely be quite surprised but even moving past that how she balances that against her want for the iron throne suddenly she'll have a, a real fork in the road in terms of ultimate objectives that she'll have to compare her actual child versus the the complicated feelings she will now have about the dragons, especially if she's already lost one or two, or even three. Plus, she still has her children in the Freedmen, which is probably a group that's only going to grow in size if we're moving across to Volantis, etc. She's already a Misa, so it'd be cool to see how she squares that in her mind. Again, that'd just be a really good read, I think. And it does also open the door for the question of actually continuing the Targaryen line, which hasn't really come up because supposedly as you say according to Miriam Mester that door has been closed since Game of Thrones although people could argue that Aegon could open it again that really depends on what you think about where Aegon's come from. Yeah I think you know what you say here about balancing like being a Misa and being responsible for all these people that she you know um, that she's leading versus her own child like we've seen that theme a ton but it's typically been with with fathers like we see that a ton in Ned's arc we see that a lot in Duran's arc and even Oberyn I mean there's there's this concept of you know do you sacrifice a few lives Uh, you know do we take innocent children versus you know ourselves you know what if it's your own child versus another child and um, to have that come up in in Danny's POV would would be really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't thought about that comparison before. Even if this was to come true, like I say, I'm not I'm not voting for it. I think it'd be likely a subject for either very, very late Winds of Winter or more likely Dream of Spring. I don't think it's going to be an issue until she comes to Westeros anyway. Maybe even after she's met John, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, what could they get up to? Maybe. Ugh. 
<laughs> I'm not cheering for that. I'm more of a John Bell shipper. I know there's also Jatton shippers out there who would be disappointed. <laughs> That's true. I'm with you on Val personally. I'm hoping that one goes forward. Uh, I don't think we've actually had Val come up in questions yet. They have chemistry, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are other uh, suggestions still. I've heard Asher rather um, been suggested before. It's not something I've ever been convinced of myself. Uh, we did recently have an email from listener Fionn Kane who made uh, quite a long argument about it. So maybe we'll address that more specifically in a, in a later question about Asher. But for now, Emily, you have some thoughts about a, a Greyjoy we actually do like. <laughs> yeah, if, if there's any Greyjoy babies in this series, please let it be Asha's. Um, yeah, that is true. I, oh. Yeah, I did put her on the list. I think it's still a dark horse candidate. Uh, you know, she's just... She's a warrior. She is married to her axe. Uh, she's been more focused on her house's survival and the good of the Ironborn than on her own love life. Um, so it seems likely that Asha would, you know, know how to take precautions to avoid pregnancy. However, in the Wayward Bride chapter, Carl the Maid does, uh, like, finish the deed, so to speak, meaning it's quite possible that she could be pregnant if the timing is right and she forgot the moon tea there's a lot going on after that with you know trying to stay ahead of Euron with being captured etc this to me certainly would add an interesting element to her captivity with Stannis um I can't imagine him being kind to someone who he mostly you know he considers her unmarried I guess I don't think he sees her true marriage as much more than a technicality but we also know how you know iron stannis is uh with his morals you know i you know i don't think he'd look kindly on a you know a uh, child out of wedlock but so far he also doesn't seem like he wants to sacrifice innocence we we certainly know that that's gonna change but you know Anyway, like this whole line of thinking that I'm going down here, I'm really not enjoying. So take that further if you want to. But yeah, Asha, Asha is on the list. Well, I only have one more thing to it. And uh, it would annoy me, I think, in the Stannis. Stannis's reaction would be like, see, I told you, we shouldn't have women in the camp. They shouldn't be on the march. And it would just yeah. be annoying to read that line of thinking. I would Let me just quite reinforce like some see... misogyny. <laughs> yeah, like... I'd much prefer him to see, I know she's got a bum ankle anyway, but I'd much prefer him to see like Asher whirling about with axes and be like, ooh, she's, I don't want to admit it, but she's actually pretty good at fighting. I'd prefer to see that. We could see both, maybe, but uh, yeah, I, I'm with you, I think. Uh, okay. Another candidate, we kind of, those are our big characters that I think uh, we've talked about, but another one is Jane Westerling, should she survive that prologue. Obviously, we discussed that maybe she will not, uh, even perhaps likely she will not, but one surefire way to make that potential death even more tragic would be to find out, either in that chapter or maybe much afterwards, is that Jane was pregnant with Rob's child at the time, which is still possible timing-wise, I believe. I'm pretty sure Lady Gwen convinced me of that. That would be a real dagger to us, the knowledge that there was a continuation of the Stark line, which is still very much endangered given the relative situations of the other children and specifically from rob as well to have that stolen away from us would be pretty harsh from george but he does like being quite harsh then again on the flip side if we find out jane is pregnant and she does survive the prologue suddenly it becomes very very exciting and she's like one of our top priorities for characters we want to survive the book yeah, she was already high on my list of like, please let no more bad happen to this poor girl. But I agree, you know, her becoming a mother would wouldn't elevate her even higher for me. Yeah, maybe we could we can unite her under the justice for Jane Banner. I think she's allowed. <laughs> All Janes require justice. All Janes like. are welcome. All Janes. 
as much as it might muddy the like Winterfell inheritance and whatever was in Rob's will and stuff like that, it'd still be amazing to see. Imagine if we were actually present as readers to witness the birth of Rob's child, and maybe it would even happen in Riverrun, perhaps even afterward after the Red Wedding, like an ultimate comparison between loads and loads of death and one birth. It could happen all the way up in Winterfell as well. Maybe even old Lady Stoneheart will be there to see it. It'll kind of melt her stony heart. That'd be cool. Imagine Lady Stoneheart being your midwife. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, that's a shocking image. (laughs) Yeah, we'll move past that one. Uh, We do actually have, I guess, Ariane is a possibility. Uh, Again, that would be much later in the book if it were to happen. and, And I'm not too hot on it myself. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think most of us are expecting her to get down with Aegon at some point, or at least try. Um, so if that does happen, she could get pregnant late in wins, uh, depending on how long of a time period the book takes. We did tackle kind of our thoughts on length of the rest of the series in a in a previous episode. Alternatively, she could finally could she finally break down. Damon Sands defenses you know he's been holding strong he's been rebuffing her but I could see her at least trying particularly if she's rejected by either Aegon himself or John Connington on Aegon's behalf like if she's spurned and feeling sad and desperate and like she failed at her mission I could see her you know trying to comfort herself in the way that she mostly knows how to do yeah you know I this is just a quick one because I don't really want to get into boat sex too much but gilly you know <laughs> I, I again moving past that particular scene i love the gilly pick if anyone deserves it i think especially out of the bunch we've listed it probably is gilly so yeah, yeah. i'm with you on that one you know she's mothering not her own child right now um and her own child obviously has some uh, has his own kind of horrific origin story so you know to have kind of a second chance at that and to you know mother her own baby out of you know a loving union would would be really nice I think Mm. and then just to take it in totally the other direction I really 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 want to be wrong about this but uh Jane Poole no see I love the gilly pick I abhor the Jane pick I I agree I do not want to think about that thank you strike that from the record yeah, let's move along there. I do have a couple more like minor characters to suggest. Um, we've got plenty of ladies in the Vale, which I think we're going to be seeing more of the Vale in Winds. We've got, you know, potentially Maya Stone. We've got Miranda. We've got some, you know, of the new marriages that Baelish has brokered. We don't know what kind of bastards might pop up for, for Harry the heir that haven't been born yet. <laughs> um, there's there's options there. You know, there's also Lolly Stokeworth. I could see Bronn wanting to lock down his own true-born heir now that he's made his moves at Stokeworth. We, we don't know what will happen with that. And this isn't necessarily a pick, but I can I just say that I'm surprised that Tyrion doesn't have any known bastards yet. Like, he's hmm. gotten around quite a bit, so I, you know, just was surprised by that. Yeah, that's interesting. But I seem to remember that was talked about a lot more in the fandom in years past, and it doesn't get brought up as much that you would think. Mm-hmm. Like, they've got to be around somewhere, you just think out of pure probability but then i also think that the talk of like how much of that he actually did was more show influence like it doesn't actually get brought up as much in the books as it does in the show so i don't know i mean it sure it happened definitely but uh, not as much so maybe that's why it's died down but i think again that will i would be not surprised at all if that did get brought up somewhere along the line i do have one more pick that i didn't actually write down so we've kind of forgotten another major character 
not that I think that will happen, but it would be quite funny if Marjorie did turn out to be pregnant, just for the controversy it would cause, just for the gossip, just for Cersei being like, see, I bloody told you, I told you, no one believed me. It would be a weird, like, Lamar's class if the Cersei and Marjorie and Ariane were all there together in, in mm-hmm. King's Landing, but probably not. So I think we can move to our next question, actually. Yeah, so for question 34... Um, Jonathan Taylor Gray via email sent in, this one is a question that posed to a character. I, if he could ask any character a question, he would ask Craster, why did you begin sacrificing your son to the others? Uh, he thinks that the answer may be a huge, uh, uh, may blow a huge remainder of the series wide open. And even though Craster has died, plenty of his wives and daughters still live. Emphasis is, of course, on Gilly. He wants Gilly to, you know, come to the foreground and thinks that this could be a way for her to do it, especially with Sam and his research. So this is one, I'd like to kind of react to what Jonathan has said here. But two, I'm also just kind of interested in, you know, what we think uh could be fun questions to pose to the characters yeah definitely we'll have to do that do that at the end before we move on this is a pretty intriguing area to me actually weird that we've put these two questions next to each other a little bit with pregnancies and now what crast has been up to as a father but never mind we'll keep going yeah this this idea is not something we've come across too often so far in 100 questions by which i mean older ideas from this series that have kind of been buried for ages and yet We'll write again. We do have plenty of those. I mean, the majority of our questions and our answers, logically, of course, come from dance. And then there's some feast in there and some wins preview. But there is still loads of stuff from the earlier books still unsolved. There's actually a really good uh, compiled list from Brendan Beefish on Reddit that, again, we'll be sure to include that in the episode description, uh, the link for you there. Uh, I would guess the majority of the unsolved stuff is up above the wall because that's where all the old stuff goes. For example, what the hell Craster was up to, but also where Benjen is and loads of stuff like that. It was a major theme of dance for George to kind of start pointing us back towards the questions from Game of Thrones, but even he couldn't hit all of them. There's just too many. Yeah, so I, I agree about the, the the wall being, you know, or north of the wall being a good place for all of this. Um we still know very, very little about the origins of the children of the forest and of the others beyond, you know, loose legends and lore. We know very little about them uh, in general relative to what we know about folks south of the wall. You know, even the Valyrians, who clearly have a more magical past that's certainly shrouded due to the doom compared to the Andals or the First Men, we still know way more about all of these more traditional, like, I guess, humans uh, than we do about these more mystical uh, races of the children of the forest or the others. Yeah, that's the, that's very true, and that's even with additional information books. We have more than five books, and that's still very much the case. Uh, as Jonathan said in his email, this could end up blowing the doors wide open on some pretty important secrets. Uh, I don't know how much of the others' backstory is ever revealed to us. I don't, Emily. Do you have some similar thoughts? Yeah, there? I mean, this this is something that could just be entirely lost to civilization at this point. Hmm. You know, there's very very few options for as to who is left who would hold the information that's alive currently you know thus far the others haven't really communicated um you know there's it's possible craster knows enough to make the sacrifice but doesn't actually know the whole history of why he's doing it he it might just be pure survival of i gotta do this because it's the only way i survive but i have no idea the depth of what's going on behind it it's something i wouldn't be surprised or disappointed if we i think we'll kind of we'll get hints there'll be little leavings and little clues i think that's much more in george's style that we'll 
we can piece things together but i don't think anyone's ever going to kind of sit down and be like one day the others were created like this and stuff like that um it's not going to be explicit but we'll get a little bit from this we'll get a little bit from bran probably and then we'll be able to to build up but crust is still i think a key piece of that a, a real uh, a real important part what was he up to has he fed the ranks of the others is someone going to copy him in some manner is that why it's going to be brought back up because someone else is going to have a similar idea or the others are looking for a placement possibly again i must hint towards stannis baratheon i think that's very very possible uh, like we mentioned bran is a really good candidate to discover some of these things because he's the best candidate to discover anything he's got the best access of everyone else especially for history and weird stuff but also that's not the only connection because remember the mutiny at craster's keep has already popped up in his dance chapters so it's not impossible that he interacts with it again either via the weirwood net or on his physical way back down to the wall like we've discussed in previous questions yeah, I agree that, that Bran is a great candidate, but I actually think like almost anyone in that cave could be a candidate, you know, uh, uh, maybe not Mira or Hodor, but, um, you know, it's possible that the, the children have passed down this information. It seemed like in the show, they certainly, you know, were tied to the other's origin stories and they, they have some of that history. You know, Bloodraven could also share via some exposition, you know, it's possible that he'll reveal certain things to Bran in conversation in order to point Bran specifically down different paths and kind of manipulate him into looking into specific views of things, you know, using the the weirwood net. Uh, so I think we all expect Bloodraven to be pretty manipulative. So if he wants Bran to explore this further and get mm. a specific takeaway from it, I could see that that being another way to reveal some of that information. We even had Bloodraven even has like double reason to know as well he was a lord commander I mean, before yeah. craster sure but that doesn't mean craster was the only one he might still know about or had to investigate or whatever else but i also do love the idea of gilly being the one who supplies some of this background information because i love gilly in general i just think she should get more more of the spotlight she should get more credit no one's been on quite the journey the world shattering journey that like gilly has now in fairness i wouldn't blame her and not at all if she didn't want to explore her past with craster and just wanted to leave that all behind i think we all agree that's more than fair enough but if she were to supply us with some super important information then fine great that'd be cool yeah i think that gilly having some information here but not having shared it yet kind of makes sense if you think about her past as an abuse victim with little to no education and and you know not very many relationships outside of her other sister wives and craster you know beyond just the trauma that she has experienced she's been devalued her entire life like she you know has just been told you're you're here for this one purpose the world is so small you know she may not even realize that she knows things that could be of value to other mm, people that's very possible that said it would be so tragic if she revealed something vital so long after leaving the wall where the information would be the most useful and most immediately applied like it just you know um, I hope if she reveals something down the road that there's a way for that information to get north quickly to to um, help the efforts there. Yeah, that's true. We've, we've spoken before about how Sam might be able to help or go that direction. But it also might just be that Gilly provides it for us, the reader. But then we've got to just be aware and see it play out without people being aware up at the wall. Because I mean, that, that could is totally be one of those like those unexpected red wedding type situations where Gilly reveals something and then something horrible related to that happens because the Night's Watch George doesn't have like the information. That, oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
as, as for the actual answer to to the main question well it's a tough one it's one we could definitely dive deep on i think it's got two elements uh, at the beginning there's the reason why for Crasto, why did he do this? And then there's the, the opposite, the reason why slash the end result for the others, why did they bother? And both of them actually have even further elements that might join to form actual answers for us at the end of the day. Uh, well, let's kick off on Craster's end. Why would he do such a thing? And the obvious and most truthful answer is because he is a monster. He is an inhuman, horrible, horrible person. We know he's willing to do various crimes to his children. We don't need to go through them. Murdering those of a particular gender kind of fits right in with Craster as a character. But to be more specific, I suspect a large part of this, kind of logistically, is that Craster didn't want any other males around be perfectly honest he was he didn't want more mouths to feed he doesn't want to marry or rape his son so it's pointless having them he thinks and he definitely definitely didn't want to he didn't want one to grow up and pick up his axe pick up dad's axe and then uh, maybe have a go at being the man in charge himself no 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 mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. clearly Craster didn't feel the need to populate his keep with young men to help him protect the place uh, which is probably a mix of ego about his own prowess in his youth and maybe whatever protection is offered by the others. Yeah, um, we could spend a whole episode talking about how awful Craster was. I think we all know, so we'll, I'll leave your summary. Hmm. Um, but I'll just offer that I think it's interesting that he that in literature, in real life, in our own histories, uh, sons are often prized over daughters and here we have a total reversal of that trope but in just one of the most horrible ways you could possibly imagine yeah thanks george you couldn't even give us that could you couldn't even just give us having daughters being treasured for being daughters for once no yeah can we have a non-evil matriarchy situation someday one day (laughs) one day well like you say everything we've said about craster is well supported in text but I, i still don't think that's the the whole story it's not just logistics something else is at play here okay. uh, a large part of it is probably this idea of sacrifice which we do know is a big deal a big theme anyway um, and a big part of life in the north and above the wall as well but there's like a strange religious aspect as well going on here Craster does refer to the others as gods uh, he clearly has a really strong respect for them which he does not have for anything else in the world, so far as we know. Um, and, I mean, okay, it's hard to blame him for that assumption that they are gods, because from the very brief glimpses we've got, they do kind of look like it. They are magical ice beings that don't leave footprints behind and can bring back the dead in a fashion, so it does make sense. Yeah, I mean, in a world where there's so many different gods and religions, especially if you go to Bravos, um, you know, but these gods work really subtly. It's actually really interesting to see a character believe in, you know, gods, these who we presume are false gods, um, that have so much more direct impact on the story uh, than even the red god does. You know, clearly the others are there, they're doing things, they're affecting things, whereas, you know, these vague miracles or resurrections or, I mean, what what did you say earlier about just trials and trials and trials for the seven? Um, we've got the trials down that's our thing (laughs) exactly like that's a kind of a weak influence on the world that the gods have compared to these literal walking ice beings but uh, it also just feels like a prudent time to point out that relore's evil counterpart is named the great other Um, Mm -hmm. i'm not claiming there's an actual connection here at all but i just love how george throws these little types of things in where you can kind of tie little words and things together and think hmm are those related or is this just an interesting coincidence 
Yeah, that I agree. There's always there's some connection somewhere. There is something, whether it's a real thing, whether it's something someone's mistook somewhere or misheard or whatever it is, there's something there. But I, yeah, this this admiration he seems to have. I mean, it does make sense. We've seen it in other pieces of literature as well. When you meet something otherworldly or obviously more powerful, then you do kind of not not Stockholm syndrome, but kind of fall them so i think that might be an aspect of what craster's been up to but the larger question is maybe craster is actually a remnant of something further buried something left behind which maybe could be what the reveal from bran or, or gilly or whomever could be maybe this kind of thing was more commonplace back in the ancient times not now in the present although it is possible but much further back in history maybe we have to go all the way back to the long night when the others were actually kind of around before uh, even the years that preceded it, maybe. Maybe many humans worshipped the others like Craster did or got involved with deals like this. Like I said, we do have examples of humans falling for them with the Night's King and all that kind of thing. And as I say, yeah, people do become enamoured with this kind of weird power that they can't explain. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it could be a case of, again, logistics. I would much rather adore these people than admit to myself what they truly are and what they could do to me. I mean, it might be... We can't beat them, so we might as well, maybe we have to get into this deal or we're all wiped out. I'd rather give away half my children than all of them, or that kind of thing. We, we've we got no idea. We can't even begin to guess. Yeah, there's that old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. And I think that mm. the idea of fully joining the others is horrifying, and we don't really see anyone in this time taking that step. But at least by metaphorically bowing down and giving them these offerings, gruesome as it was, they were able to survive. Yeah, I mean... When it comes down to it, there's still way too many details about when the others first came and in what number and anything like that for us to really work anything out. But something like this, it could even relate to why the wall was built where it was. There could be many other reasons for that, but this might be one of them. Clearly, however it was built, brand the build or whatever, it was built with a whole bunch of people still on the other side, uh, despite the knowledge of what they were clearly being left with. So is that because all of them, some of them, were involved with deals like this um, um, or were kind of pro-other? As the others retreated, maybe the majority of them kind of woke up and recognised them for the monsters that they really were. And then maybe this little pocket or this old story survived and somehow made its way down through the centuries to Craster. Because the interesting thing to me is... How was this initially suggested and why Craster specifically? How did they come to know of him? Why did they seek him out? Because it's not like he's super, super, super far north, is it? He's fairly close to the wall. They must have had to go past a lot of people to get to Craster, as far as we know. Well, they must have been there for a while, if uh, you know, given the age of some of his wives, too. You know, he's yeah, been doing this deal this for one. years and years, yeah. Yeah, he's not been... He didn't hand them all over in a weekend. You're exactly right. This is a, an ongoing thing. So did they know Craster for one of these descendants? Did they just say, oh, look, that guy's a bit of a dick. He'll probably agree to this. Or uh, did they give him kind of similar options? It's this or you die. Uh, maybe they give that to all people, but most people would actually choose die. And Craster's just the, the weird one. I wonder if this is something Mance has come across or experienced because there's still a lot of Mant's background with the others we don't know so maybe he was offered a choice and just hasn't brought it up I mean it's yeah many many Um, possibilities yeah imagine being a fly on the wall for that first meeting between the others and Craster I mean I think this is kind of getting back to the root of the question here uh you know we'll we'd find out if you know either the others specifically chose Craster and made these demands of him or 
if he had to negotiate with these undead monsters that clearly have no problem with extreme violence most of the time, you know, uh, how would that have gone down? Is, is are they are they telling him what to do, or is he ambling his way through it, trying to figure out what can I, what magical combination of words can I say to make them not murder me? Um, you, you know, I think that would inform a bit of his character. You know, with uh, to, to know mm. that. Yeah, that's weird. That's a, almost a backwards way of thinking. Did Craster just be like, "Here, you can have my son"? He, was he the one to suggest it? Did he kind of bridge it first? Probably not, but I mean, it's definitely possible. Hopefully um, not. I, I think, mean, that would make him like one percent less of a monster if, if yeah. he didn't <laughs> didn't come up with the idea himself. We just had that. I mean, I'm going to throw him out anyway. Do you want him? That kind of thing. Um, one more point on Craster. I think he he was a shunned outsider at the at the other wildlings don't like him i i say that because stannis like i brought up earlier he is also going to be a shunned guy i think by the end of winds i think northmen are going to tell him to go away so we've talked about craster sacrificing children we've already talked quite a lot about shireen in this episode there's some similarities there i wonder if stannis is going to be like giving his whole army over perhaps or just signing everyone up to be another or white or something like that there, there is also a suggestion from some characters that craster has black blood i think it's egret and diewin both describe in that way and if i'm right um i think joe magician quite a while ago now once wrote a, a reddit post about all the other uses of the phrase black blood in in all the text and how commonly it was associated with a curse or something not quite right again maybe that's the thing that's kind of trickled down through the centuries and maybe the others can sense that or can kind of know that's what they need to aim for maybe not but yeah i mean we don't know do we this guy <laughs> right so that's all been pretty craster centric so far on you know what the deal is about let's uh think of the other side if you'll forgive that that pun which you actually wrote <laughs> um now uh you know, why did the others start? What are they, you know, getting out of this? What, what, what is their, you know, whole thoughts on this deal? Yeah, because to look at things, if we'd never heard of Crest, if that whole thing hadn't come up, it doesn't seem like they need it. So why, what's their motivation? Option one is what the show told us uh, and kind of never really made anything out of, but it, it did show us. The fact that these sons are being taken away and then changed into others themselves or White Walkers on the show, which would open a whole host of questions that only nerdy people like us would really care about, about how close the others we saw in the prologue and via Sam are to actual humanity. Can you change a human into another? Like how similar are they? Uh, maybe this is their only way of procreating. Maybe they don't have another way. Or is it just a booster to their ranks? They just want some more others. Whether this means that all others were once humans, again, like the show showed us, including like the first other, the great other, maybe Melisandre is referencing to, we don't know. There's quite a lot to think about there. Option two, which is probably worse to think about, is maybe this is a, a literal farm system here. And old Nan was right, right back at the beginning. They literally feed upon the babies. They take the baby children and they eat them i don't like i don't like it i don't like I don't it like it, like it. Okay, we'll get through it we'll get through it if that was true you'd wonder why they bother having a deal with craster because you could just take go in and take the children you do it everywhere else why don't you do it with craster so, i mean there's plenty of wilding children around the wall you don't need a deal and i would say this is probably the least likely luckily because it seems to ignore that sacrifice slash strike a deal element that we were just talking about so option three is Either they just turn them into whites straight away, or that's like another 
kind of backup farm system but then again that has the same problems as the one i just mentioned or it's something we can't comprehend which probably is quite likely maybe it is specifically baby whites the others want for some reason i don't know why they would but maybe they do uh, i definitely think we will see our share of child whites baby whites when they finally breach the rule just so george can be uber uber creepy I mean, it's all pretty difficult to work out but i think we agree with Aegon that there is something of significance there something to be brought out um something lies within that idea of sacrifice and worship that's the part i'm most fixated on there's apparently something that others require out of it to make it beneficial or at least preferable to them is this what they plan for all of humanity in general could be could be the other very very interesting part to me and uh, to link this back to gilly again is that the only son of craster to ever survive or not be sacrificed as far as we know is at castle black right now so do the others treat him as like something owed is he part of this deal that they made they think he, he is theirs is he another again a beacon they can detect are they specifically after him we don't know but i expect it to be one of these big major reveals and deep dives of the book something that we'll really be talking about a lot when we when we finish it again i'm looking at stannis baratheon who maybe feels as king as westeros he can he has the authorization to sacrifice all of the seven kingdoms children um, he's definitely going to be doing it with one of them maybe not to the others but he's going to be doing some sacrificing so we could go much further on this topic i think but we should probably do this because it's not the nicest yeah i i liked the premise of this question in general too so moving away from craster and some of the darker themes yeah, of, of this uh I I want to ask you, uh, what question would you ask a character if you could ask anyone, living or dead, anything? Uh, I will caveat, we should probably omit Bloodraven and Bran, because that just seems like cheating, but anybody yeah. else? <laughs> yeah, that is cheating, as much as they could give us. Uh, well, first off, obviously, I would ask Peter Baelish who the fuck he thinks he is, but after beating him to a pulp, I would then... Uh, I'd ask Tana Merriweather who she was working for because I sure as hell don't know and then maybe to relax a bit I'd ask Maester Raymond to just tell me some stories or even actually even better I'd ask Leaf to tell me some stories because she'd know even more and more interesting ones what about I like, you I like that um, I think I would probably ask Varys what he knew about any and all other like royal offspring of the last Targaryens um, you know I know that's sort of cheating because I'm I'm kind of using weasel words to not just have this be about um, Aegon but you know I would want to know you know uh, is Rhaenys really dead yes probably otherwise I think we would come up with that you know um, I know there's all sorts of theories about you know are our Viserys and or Danny really who they say they are uh but also, you know, what does he know about about Lyanna and Rhaegar? And, you know, does he is he at all realizing that there could be another Targaryen out there? I, I just would be so interested to know how far along he was in his scheming and his connections hmm. in King's Landing at the time of the rebellion to to, you know, potentially be on to some of these threads. Um, so, yeah, I would just want to know a little bit more about that and about what really went down with all of it. That's a great pick. I mean, you could, there's so many questions, even like logistic ones of like, where's all your tunnels? What's happened to the little birds, Varys? All, <laughs> these, all these kind of things. It could yeah. go on and on and on. Show me your costume closet. I want to see how many you've got. Oh my God. That yeah, kind of I would spend days in there with him. That would take all day, wouldn't it? That would take all day. Oh yeah, even better for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, let's move now from a pretty dark question again to... Uh, at least a lighter one, I think we'll agree. Uh, this is what I referenced earlier. This is question 35. Comes from Low Links. And the question this time is, what do you think Sorella will get up to in Wins? 
This question has so much potential. This has been on the list since very early, and I've been just kind of muddling it over in my head and saving it for a later episode so I could think and think and think on it. Um, we've got so much potential here. Um, I want to start off and just say, keep in mind, we're going to go ahead and assume that Sorella could be interchangeable with Alaris here. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't agree with that, that's fine. We'll just be covering both of those characters if you think they're distinct characters. But moving ahead, we've got, you know, potential Dornish backstory information we could get. We could find out more about Marwyn, Old Town, uh, a ton of potential for her to show up in other POVs down the line, considering that the Citadel is about to be sacked. So what do you think about it? <laughs> Well, first of all, I'm just pretty glad that we, we get this question. Like you said, it's been around for a while. I've been looking forward to it because this is something I've had quite a lot of thoughts on before, but Scraps and Scrolls never looked too closely at Sorella, so we never really got to discuss it. We did a little bit in Sam's last Feast chapter, but there was quite enough going on in that chapter, to be honest, so we didn't really get to, to focus. Uh, I think we've even mentioned Sorella and this kind of thing in episode three in the last episode i believe but i think she might serve as part of the bridge between the ironborn and dornish storylines as she becomes part of this group that's probably going to get caught up in the middle or at least might do we might even have differing opinions on this slightly but i i don't think sam and his group are going to have that much time in old town before euron arrives messes everything up and then best case scenario is this little group are forced to leave old town uh, better that than being taken captive certainly we do not want that so i think maybe we get we get one sam chapter at the citadel so to speak i think we do definitely probably get one where we maybe see some payoff uh, of all those teasing threads from feast but then euron will show up to ruin everyone's time and perhaps at the end of that first chapter and again i don't even think that's definite maybe we will get the beginning of that battle maybe that's how it ends like sam sees the ships coming and or maybe even sees the kraken or whatever else it is yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to see any of that, it's probably going to be through Sam's eyes rather than, like, I don't think it's going to be uh, the Dampere's eyes. I think, like we've talked about before, he's he's all but dead at this point, so I don't know how much more POV we'll get from him. So all that said, I, I agree with your take here. I think with the impending doom being brought on by the Crow's Eye, we won't be spending significant time in Old Town. Euron has a lot to do in order to achieve his own goals of pure chaos and an apocalypse and whatever else. Uh, Old Town's really just a small piece of that for him. So uh, you, you can't bring about the end of the world as we know it. Sorry, a little REM joke in there. Uh, by hanging out in one place the whole time. So I think, you know, he, he'll come in, he'll do his thing, and, and uh, people will scatter and hopefully still survive to have uh, more to come. Yeah, I, I agree. But in terms of Sorella, I I call that a shame because she's obviously got the long con going at the Citadel. She's fully entrenched in this Alaris persona. Again, pretty, pretty sure that's what's going on here. Uh, she's not only fooled a full group, a group of friends. So she's got this backstory and life. She's kept it going. As far as we know, no one suspects anything, including her teachers and whatever else. But she's not only done that, which is impressive enough. She's involved herself with this kind of secret little organization and she's been underhanded in terms of Marwyn and his larger mission with everything that's going on with, with Sam as well. So if we did have more time at the Citadel, there would undoubtedly be lots to see um, if we had any peacetime before Euron arrived, where Sorella could provide everything from further world building about how the maesters actually work, how that order works, up to the more interesting thoughts and plots of Marwyn what's been seen by the glass candle for example uh, what he thinks about daenerys etc etc that could fill more than a single chapter if we were allowed to view it but probably not 
Yeah, I think what you mentioned here is also precisely why we aren't very likely to get an Alaris or Sorella POV. You know, she just knows way too much given her time at the Citadel and in service to Marwyn. She obviously was also close to Oberyn. Even as we near the climax of the series, I believe some of the, like, the secrets and lore that she's privy to are going to remain a mystery to the reader, much like we've not seen a POV for Littlefinger or Varys. They just know too much. So... In addition to that, you know, by limiting her time with Samwell before the disaster, it helps George give us a few choice nuggets of info that we might need or excited for without her just becoming this like walking encyclopedia of the deeper mysteries. You know, we we had we saw Marwin exit and and you know he's gonna be traveling for a while, so it, it won't just be, you know, lore dump from him either. And I think that that's smart from George wanting to hold some of these mysteries in his pocket and keep the reader guessing for longer. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we probably get, again, a few hints, a few little, like, as you say, nuggets that George is going to give us. And then before she can reveal more, before we can see her working the world of the Citadel or showing Sam the ropes, uh, maybe even giving us a bit of a hint on what's going with the alchemist slash Pate, like we'll be on the edge of that and then Euron will show up and suddenly there's more important things to be talking about, like running away. That will probably move to the top of the priority list. <laughs> Yeah, hey, yeah. I, have this, I have a thought here I'm going to interject too, which is, you know, in terms of what will be revealed with the theory that Sorella Cer- is Alaris, do you think that that's something that would get revealed to Sam? Or do you think that the identity and who she really is would, would stay secret I, for now? Do you know what? I think, I don't, it, I don't think it does in this situation, but if she gets a bit further to where we think she's going, they meet up with certain people and then she kind of gets outed for lack of a better phrase then yeah maybe sam is mm-hmm. present for that i don't think i don't think she offers up that information i don't think there's any reason to yet even if they are on the run for their lives if you're being smart about it if you know there's an attack even if you are a bastard of a, of a family you're still pretty valuable you don't want to be taken by any especially Greyjoys. so i think she keeps it secret uh, for now mm-hmm. but luckily i don't think she is going to be taken captive again i certainly hope not i think we do get to see her on the run Hopefully with Sam, hopefully with Gilly, I'm hoping everyone gets out. We don't want anyone left behind. Although having said that, back in the Forsaken chapter, one of the visions that Aaron has is of Euron having a Sphinx at his command. So does that mean Sorella or does it mean Dawn in general? I mean, I can't say that that Sphinx riddle has ever made any sense to me, but it is something to consider. Yeah, there's some there's some references to sphinxes, and so I just wanted to kind of cover at a high level what what is a sphinx and how could this relate or not relate to Alaris. Um, so in our world, a sphinx can be a few different things depending on the the history and the specific definition. You know, sphinx could have the head of a cat or a lion or a woman or a sheep or a falcon. Typically, it has the body of a lion or some kind of great cat. Um, sometimes sphinxes have wings. Like there's a lot of different sphinx imagery when you think about all the house sigils that could tie into all those different things i just mentioned the permutations are are really endless um so i we won't spend a whole lot of time going down that route but um the the egyptian sphinx that i think we're most familiar of uh familiar with when we think of a sphinx is uh half man half lion Interestingly, Napoleon's troops damaged the specific sphinx and removed its nose. So when you think of a half-man or a lion or a noseless creature, uh, Tyrion really comes to mind. So there are some other things uh, that the sphinx could be related to that aren't necessarily Alaris the sphinx. And then on top of this, Planetos sphinxes 
you know, are at least likely to have a nose. So I don't know. Uh, but, you know, we we don't really spend a lot of time finding out what a, a sphinx is in world. So anyway, all of this is to say I'm not entirely convinced that every single sphinx reference in the book series is tied directly back to Alaris. It could be a red herring, but um, just, you know, wanted to cover that a little bit. No, thank you. You covered it way better than <laughs> I, I would uh, ever be able to, but I agree with you overall. Like I said, I think they get away. This core group, maybe they even have Leo Tyrell with them, possibly Pate slash Jackin, whoever that is, as well. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen at Old Town, but I think these guys either have the heads up or they're just smart enough to know we need to get out of here, whatever else. And I, I like the idea of that all happening because even knowingly or unknowingly, they'll have these super important things with them on the road. They'll have the true horn, as far as we know. They might have the Death of Dragons book that Pate has got out of the of the Citadel. Maybe Sorella grabs the glass candle on the way out. And they also do have Mance's child for whatever that's worth. So I just like that idea of them all running away and not even knowing how valuable they are. Uh, we did talk about the possibility of Euron getting his hands on one or more of these things if he even knows they're there. But either way, I just like that uh, image in my head. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of, of uh, all of them making it out of there. You know, it, it does feel like maybe a little too clean for a, a George R. R. Martin story. I want to bring up an alternate possibility because I was having a great conversation with one of our patrons, Aegon Sixth, about this, where he recently proposed the idea that, that Alaris could be captured by Euron and maybe that's how the identity reveal happens. We'd absolutely hate to see it, but you have to wonder if there's any truth to the show's depiction of Euron and the Sand Snakes. Like, did that come from somewhere in the books or mm. was that pure HBO D&D fantasy? I don't know. I think it's unlikely that he'd get multiple snakes like he did in the show, given how scattered they are, but one is extremely close by for him right now. Um, mm. This also is one way you could see the vision that you mentioned about having a sphinx at his command come true. Um, not that I want to think about that and not that I think that she would willingly ally with Euron at all. But so I, I hope that if if it does go down this very dark path that she's clever enough to stay alive and play Euron somehow, she is Oberyn's daughter after all. Yeah, you you got to say it can happen. Like We do not want to see it. You're right. We don't want to see it for Sorella. We don't want to see a glass candle in Euron's hands either because I, mean, I don't think he needs that and the visions as well, but definitely... We don't want it. It would be bad news. Uh, the other possibility is that Obara is the sand snake he gets his, his hands on because she's not a million miles away. We're kind of flowing into a different question here, but she wants to go to Old Town. She wants to see Old Town burn. She would be at least a little more likely to, to join up because she kind of likes the chaos uh, or come willingly. So that is possible. But yeah, I mean, I think if we could choose, we don't want either of them to end up with him. Like I said, I think they all get out and maybe Obara meets them. Maybe she meets Euron. If she does meet this group, which could happen because, again, geographically, they're kind of heading towards each other. I would be interested to see how the two sisters react to each other and whether they are friendly towards each other. Do they rub each other the wrong way? It's probably the latter because Sorella, she's like the middle child. There's like three sections of the Sand Snakes. There's the three older ones that we've met. There's the younger ones who we've kind of just barely met. And then there's Sorella very much on her own um and she doesn't seem to be consumed by vengeance like the older ones are so she's probably out of the loop with obara and tyene and nymeria so whether area hotel is coming along or where they meet we can save that for later but i do see the sand snakes 
all having a step up in importance in this book and Sorella might actually be the most interesting. I think the two in King's Landing could have the biggest effect immediately with Tom and, and Marcella, but Sorella, Tom and Marcella, too many allies in this book, <laughs> um, but Sorella, yeah, she she might be the most interesting because she might continue Marwyn's mission, whatever that looks like if she's on the run. How far does she take that? What does she think will serve him how much does she want to take care of sam or get somewhere else maybe she know maybe there's a contingency for all we know and marwin said if anything goes wrong get to this place take the glass candle here mm-hmm. could be yeah i think you you bring up a good point because in previous episodes we talked about how like isolated doran politics have been and how you know uh even now doran is still thinking a little bit small and most of his allies are there but with through oberon first and now his daughters you're seeing that influence kind of spread out and say hey important to be in king's landing it's important to be in the citadel it's it's important Mm. uh to go to daenerys um you know so i I just like the idea that we're gonna see their influence grow quite a bit in this book and finally see dorne kind of step onto the world stage a little bit more and out of their own you know small kingdom now um kind of what you're saying before about obara heading north um you know earlier we kind of predicted that the sack of old town would probably happen kind of early um, so if that happens and Obara isn't there yet, you know, where else might these two meet up? Could they meet up? You know, I I personally just have a hard time seeing her finish her business with Darkstar in time to get to Old Town before things really kick off there. However, if Sorella is captured by Euron, would Obara go after them? You know, and if so, would it be head on or will she have learned some lessons about subtlety from Doran, Hota, even Oberyn, uh, although I don't think that's typically what she's taken away from her father's teachings in the past. <laughs> and, you know, alternately, like, let's hope that capture doesn't happen. If Alaris doesn't stick with Sam long term, you know, maybe they escape together, but don't, don't, you know, they scatter or something. Where huh. might she go next? She's got people all over the place. She's in Dorne. Obara's there for now. The youngest snakes are there. Ilaria's there. Doran's there. You know, there's also King's Landing. We've got Nymeria there uh, knowingly. And then in disguise, Tien is there as well. Uh, in the Stormlands and moving up in that direction, we've got Ariane and Elia. I don't know how much she knows about their movements or their locations. Mm. Um, and, you know, were there other locales that she might want to visit? You know, Yeah, this, really, this is one of the probably good examples of what we were saying about earlier in we only really know anything and even that's not a lot about the beginning of this book i think sam and by extension sorella is a really good example of we can guess what's going to happen in the beginning but after that it's hands up we've just got no idea so i think um i really like this question because sorella will be more important in wins but after that initial part it's really hard to see where so it's really interesting just to see where it will go uh, one more thing before we move on is i'm hoping to see a lot more of sorella's archery skills if they do stick around in Old Town long enough to at least participate in the battle, or maybe they've got to fight their way out or whatever else, it'd just be cool to see that archery skill return from the Feast Prologue. And it occurs to me, perhaps, maybe even Sam will get a go, and maybe Sorella will train him up a bit, because that was one of the things that Sam had started to learn up at the wall under John's command. We know he's got stronger on the journey down, so that'd just be a nice connection between the two. Yeah, I really like this archery connection there. So, you know, good shout with that. The last thing I want to bring up is um, like gender and pronouns, because when we talk about, you know, we don't see a ton of representation of, of you know, uh, non-binary characters, uh, at least explicitly in text. I, I think there's certainly characters who would fall into that category. And, and so Sorella might be one of them. So 
Um, you know, throughout this whole coverage, we've been saying her. Um, and that's, I think, because that's how the family refers to her as, as you know, with a female identity. It's Sorella. It's she, her. Obviously, in the form of Alaris, that's different. You know, there's not female mm. maesters. So she's been assuming you know, he, him pronouns and living as a man. So I think the more that we see this character, and especially if the true identity is revealed to a POV character, it will be really interesting to see those themes of gender and gender identity come through in a new character, you know, where we've seen more of this with Brienne or, um, you know, Cersei yeah. and Jamie. certainly we, we get a little bit of that interplay of genders there. So I'm um, just curious to see where that would go. And I, I know that Lowe, who submitted this question, has... Um, done a ton of uh, research and put together some really great thoughts on, you know, gender and identity in the series. So I certainly wanted to make sure we, we gave that a little shout as well. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the Brienne pick there, that would be a really interesting conversation if we were to ever witness that between Sorel and Brienne. So fingers crossed, maybe, yeah. probably not, but maybe, maybe somewhere down the line. Absolutely. So um, our friend Amanda on Twitter uh, sent in this question. She says, I can't figure out who Darkstar will align with and what his motives will be. I do think he'll wield and possess Dawn, uh, so that makes him important. So where do his loyalties lie? And will he try to keep Dawn as Sword of the Morning? Or would he potentially give it up to someone like John or another Azor high type figure? Yeah, it's quite, this is another good pairing of questions here. We're kind of in a similar geography. You've already seen how the answers might blend together a bit here. Now, I'll put my hand up and admit the first thing I typed for this was I will try and keep it fairly light because I have spoken about it before on Radio Westeros' live stream last year. That's a lie. I don't keep it light at all. Um, and actually, I have more, but I, I, did, I did try and resist a little bit because this could have turned into another hour question and we don't have another hour, so... Uh, I'll try, but I'm not promising anything. But first things first, uh, when talking about Darkstar, before we can even get on to him getting Dawn or what he might do with it, is what's going to happen at the beginning? Because that's a whole great big mess of questions. This hunt that um, Hotar and Obama, like we mentioned, and Balon Swan, the Kingsguard, they've been sent on, they've been sent to find Darkstar. So what's going to happen there? is a hunt we're all assuming to be successful and that they'll find him, at least. But does anyone really think all four of these characters are going to be walking out of that desert alive? Well, I don't think so. At least not not under their own um, motivation, probably. But the, the tough question to begin with is, who fights who? That's going to be fighting, I think we all agree. But from, from who, from where, just about every combination seems possible because everyone can fight out of this group and uh, everyone can also turn. Maybe not Hotar, he's pretty much on the straight and narrow, but everyone else is a question mark. The most likely scenario probably is Darkstar versus Balon Swan. Duran, he sent Hotar and Obara on this mission in order to take Balon away from Marcella, so um, uh, what he knows as well, take what he knows away from getting back to Cersei. But he also wouldn't mind the guy disappearing and not coming back. Maybe. And that becomes a bit more difficult. It depends how far he's going along with his plan with Aegon and everything else. Because if Duran ends up deciding, actually, I don't want to move against the Lannisters too openly, then two Kingsguard being killed on Dornish ground is not a good way to go. So maybe that's not as clear. But maybe... So Aereo might not want to push Balon into a bad situation, but Obara might. She wanted him dead in Sunspear. And she's pretty hot on the old vengeance violence thing. So, okay, she she gave her oath or whatever to Duran. 
I think we're a bit more questioning of that than Duran is, maybe. Yeah, if anyone might... of the Sand Snakes is going to break their oath, I feel like she's the most hot-headed. She's the most, yeah. like, just right out. You know, I think if the other ones do, it's going to be in a way more underhanded way, whereas Obara mm-hmm. is just ready for vengeance and violence most. most yeah, I mean, I think they all do, but she would probably be first and the least worried about doing it. She would just, just go for it. So, okay, mm-hmm. let's say that happens. Okay, easily easily um, imaginable. But mm-hmm. maybe Darkstar just takes it upon himself. Maybe he kills Balon because he wants war as well. This is another good way to start it. And perhaps he has some extra motivation to kill Balon given that he's a Kingsguard. And Darkstar, Gerald, yeah, Gerald doesn't like uh, Cousin Arthur in general. He doesn't like his, his Kingsguard history. Kingsguard, in the, uh, they're not well liked in general in Dawn anyway for obvious reasons so okay maybe he's got extra motivation he didn't seem to with eris oakheart but maybe he was just waiting for his chance and like i say we know how much he resented arthur balon swan's a lot more of a target anyway so okay that's one possibility there's too many to already keep a track of to be honest if that does happen as hotar noted in dance balon is battle tested Eris Oakheart wasn't. He'll put up more of a fight, but we're all probably still betting on Darkstar. I don't think anyone's thinking this hunt is going to end with Darkstar's death, because that'd be weird. So if Balon goes against all of them, that's another possibility. Does that mean a temporary truce with Hotar and Obara and Darkstar? It's unlikely, but it's possible. The same could be said for if Obara turns. Did the did the three men join together to get her back? What if Sam turns up with news of Old Town? There's lots that could happen. There's a high possibility of Obara teaming up with Darkstar, like we said, because they're at least on the same line at the beginning. They both want to kick off a war. Obara is hungry for vengeance. She might decide Balon is as good a Lannister representative as any other, so let's just kill him. Maybe they both turn on Hotar. They get him killed, although probably not killed because we kind of need him as a POV. Maybe they take him hostage, wound him, whatever. It's all up in the air. It's everyone's bet. Emily, let me catch my breath, please. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, before we move on too far, I think like it's uh, important to point out that, you know, no one that's going down to take on Darkstar is considered safe in my mind. Um, I'll read this little passage from Ariane 1 from The Winds of Winter. Uh, Starts with Damon uh, Damon Sand saying, uh, Darkstar could put an end to Lady Obara just as easily. Ariane replies, she has Aria Hota with her. Prince Doran's captain of the guard has, uh, had dispatched Sir Aries Oakheart with a single blow, uh, though the King's Guard were supposed to be the finest knights in the realm. She again says, no man can stand against Hota. Is that what Darkstar is? A man? Sir Damon grimaced. A man would not have done what he did to Princess Marcella. Sir Gerald is more a viper than your uncle ever was. Prince Oberon could see that he was poisoned. He said so more than once. It's just a pity he never got around to killing him. So I bring this up because, you know, we're talking about all the potential team ups here. And I think that there's definitely evidence, especially with Obara, to potentially align with him short term. If she does turn on Doran and say, screw that plan. I'm doing what I want to do. I want vengeance. Um, but, you know, Darkstar is is clearly being built up as this villainous figure who even if he's offered an alliance, might just say no. And, and you know, he's, we'll, we'll see what he has to do. Uh, you know, certainly strong opinions that he's he's not even a man, he's a viper. And to say that someone is more dangerous than Prince Oberon, who, you know, 
did what he did to uh, the Tyrells, who, you know, uh, has been known to fight with poison and be a little bit underhanded. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty big indictment, even if so far Darkstar has been a little lackluster on page. Precisely that. Precisely that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're agreeing there's going to be some form of fight at the beginning. There's mm-hmm. then going to be some alignment at the beginning. Neither of those two things have to hold. They can duel and not kill each other. They can align and then break up pretty quickly. Uh, for my money, I would say Darkstar and Hotar duel because we've been waiting for that. But Balon dies and then the, the, the other three are left. Maybe Darkstar gets taken prisoner. Maybe um, they, they're aligned or whatever. I think he probably persuades them that not going straight back to Duran is the best choice. That there's something else they need to do. What that could be, well, now we're getting more into the meat of Amanda's question because I think we need to look past this original fight. Mm-hmm. Let's just assume for now Darkstar and at least the other two, maybe Balon as well, meet up and get out of the out of the desert. Now, background Dornish politics, like you mentioned earlier, we've discussed a lot in the Ariane uh, wins preview. As much of half, as much as half of Dawn could be ready to split, they could be re- ready to rebel, either because they want war or they don't want war. They want to support Aegon or they don't want to support Aegon. Maybe they just want to argue with Duran. Some maybe that energy that we've talked about via the Sand Snakes is just built up to whatever Duran wants. They want the opposite. They just want to kick off. And given that Duran's eyes might be falling from the prize for the first time in years combining with his perceived inaction when it looks like everyone else is doing everything uh, that could be that could be a real kickoff to what Darkstar has to say to them he might say hey look you need to go and check on these people you need to go and talk to these people don't worry about Duran yeah if you leave this unchecked it's going to blow up in his face you'd actually be better served about uh, you'd actually be better served doing that first whatever it is I think they get Hotar and Obara off the beaten track and I mean Especially if Duran dies or something else, or they hear rumours of that, then there's no Martells left, Sunspear for the taking, Dawn erupts, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I think, I think you know, if that does happen, if something happens to Duran, that I could absolutely see Darkstar making a play. I don't think it matters to him too much if he's got the right bloodline. Like, he's already a cadet branch, I believe, of House Dane, but... Um, you know, he's apparently like the most dangerous fighter in Dorne too. So who, you know, we'll see who opposes him. Unfortunately, I just don't know how many allies he has and if he has enough to pull it off. Like House uh, uh, Ironwood, I always, I'm so bad at pronouncing that, um, would likely <laughs> like hate this idea. You know, they've been pretty aligned with the, the Martells in the past, uh, depending on, um, you know, what happens here, they may see this as their time. Um, yeah, you know, there's also uh, plenty of houses that we think are aligned with the Sand Snakes, um, you know, or with Ariane who would support her. So I think that he's going to be uh, met with some resistance if he does make a play for, for Sunspear. Yeah, it's interesting because is it a, a matter of certain people team up? Like, example the Danes and the Ironwoods. I mean, there's factions of the Danes to consider as well. Mm -hmm. We need to get into that. Or is it everyone for themselves? Um, Like you say, you bring up the the Ironwoods. We've mentioned before, Anders Ironwood would be a prime candidate to take advantage of the chaos and kind of turn his back on the Martells because there's historical bad blood between the families if we want to go back centuries pre-Nymeria or even post-Nymeria when she first turns up. There's, if we want to go back just a few decades or a couple of decades, 
then there's the Oberyn debacle. And now, sooner or later, maybe even already, Anders is going to find out that his son died getting Duran's son off on a apparently pointless and definitely failed mission. And he might have lost his nephew as well in, in the big man. So there's definitely possibilities there. And we pointed out also in those Ariane Wins chapters that Anders is currently up in the bone way. He's playing the good soldier. He's waiting for word on whether they're going to support Aegon, whether they're going to march, what they're doing. Maybe he decides, I'm going to make up my own mind. I'm going to take this army and do what I wish for it. It's, uh, it's by no means a certainty, but there's definitely strong candidates. And Darkstar is aware of all this. He knows about the chaos. He knows about this kind of simmering under the under the Dornish sands. It's difficult because Western Dawn is just so far away from Sunspear. The unique geography of this realm makes regional politics really, really key and very, very hard to govern. It requires extra effort or extra beliefs. It's not like the Riverlands where you can just ride. Everyone's close by. You can ride around. This is much more close to the north. It's like three different kingdoms in one, basically, with the different geographies. Very much so. so. Different politics. Very much so. I mean, we have these different kind of Dornish people, don't we? This is much closer to the north where you need a real strong leader that has these people tied in every compass direction because if you don't, things start to slip. And Duran just isn't that guy for better or worse whether you support how he does things uh, he's not one to keep everyone together although he has done it for decades we should point out so it's not like he's terrible mm-hmm. but dark star or other danes or who else he could have been fanning the flames he could be already having support we don't know what he was leading ariane into again we talk about contingencies gerald dane might have some himself um like i say if we're going to see all of this then you've got to imagine that hotar is a prisoner or being tricked in some way he's not going to do it willingly for too long and he's like the only one that could show us unless sam gets involved uh, that's probably a bit of a stretch but as you pointed out um he is the most dangerous man in dawn oberon knew that and i trust oberon's senses he would know i think he is talking about skill the sword sure but i think there's more to it i think he's dangerous in that he can offset something he can fan the flames he has some secret maybe about one family or the other, maybe his, maybe the Martells, who knows. But I I also quite like the idea of Dawn breaking into chaos and all this infighting, only for a really powerful woman to come sailing out of the east with a whole bunch of ships to claim it for her own. I think that'd be a nice historical duality there between Nymeria and Daenerys. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, where am I here? Um, Bottom line, I think, to get back to the question, I told you I would ramble in this. I think Gerald Dane's loyalty is probably just to Gerald Dane. He might have political aspirations, but I think at the end of the day, he wants stuff for himself. And if he does take Dawn or the Sword of the Morning title, he'll want to keep it. I don't think he's giving it to John. I don't think he's giving it to anyone else. Uh, not willingly, anyway. Yeah. The thing is, I don't think he actually wants to take it. I think he wants it to be given. He wants everyone to admit that he deserves it. He wants the recognition. So maybe he thinks, hey, if I get House Dane on top, they give me the title, they give me the sword. Bob's your uncle. Yeah, and I mean, he might not be as worried about taking it if he thinks that Edric Dane is, you know, I mean, how, how much news does he have of Edric at this point? You, you know, he might feel like, hey, it's my, I'm, it, you know, there's no one else left. It's me now. Um, but I agree with you that he probably does, you know, crave that, that he does seem like he has a bit of an ego on him. Um, you know, Mm. he's also like allegedly evil. He's this viper, you know, so is he selfish too? Is that part of it? 
Um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who think, gosh, you know, sort of the morning, there's this tie in with the long night. Could this be, you know, uh, the sword used by Azura High? I personally don't think that, that there's any textual evidence right now that, uh, Gerald Dane cares about R'hllor or the Red God or the Azura High prophecy. And I think if you're going to give up your family's ancestral Valyrian steel, steel sword, you need motivation behind that that I just don't see there for someone like Darkstar. Yeah, I agree. I, in fairness, I think a lot of characters are going to be kind of hit in the face of that kind of stuff. They are going to be shown stuff that they've never believed in, but he's like as pretty much as far removed from it as you can get at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe he ends up by Old Town and starts seeing Krakens as well, but probably not. Yeah. What uh, I do think is... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. Um, what I do think it is, uh, like the Danes, they've kind of always been on the perimeter. We're not quite sure why. Are they going to get involved? Are they super important? Are they not? As George kind of changed his mind, I think Gerald is a good way, a viable path to get Dawn, Dawn the Sword, um, in up into the main geography and up into the main plot. If it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen by him. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe George has changed his mind and is going to leave that. But if it is, this is the way to do it, I would say. Yeah. I've been thinking, you know, in terms of if he goes into the main plot a little bit more, what would it take to get a man like Darkstar on your team? Obviously, Arianne thought she had his loyalties, but things went a little awry there with Hota showing up. Um, That didn't last at all. You know, so I'm trying to think beyond Dornish politics here and into the great game of Thrones, so to speak. Like, who Hmm. would he most likely ally with, you know? Euron doesn't seem likely, even though we've got like this viper and this other evil Kraken guy. Like I, I think like they're both too too much ego, too much selfishness for them to necessarily team up. Um, I don't see Darkstar as being someone who wants to be beholden to someone else, and you'd have to really play that game carefully with someone like Euron. Uh, with the Lannisters, I mean, their star is no longer rising, really. Um, see what I did there? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so despite the, the symbolism, you know, with with, with House Dane, um, Starfall, you know, I just, I, I still don't see them them teaming up. You know, I don't, uh, who wants to be Team Cersei at this point? If if there's any, like, one true enemy to Dorne and all of Dorne, it's it's the Lannisters at this point. So I, I don't true. see him wanting to get with Cersei in any sort of way. You know, we've got Aegon. Um, I don't think that that Darkstar would care whether he was legit or not. You know, if he gets offered that recognition, those the the support, the lands, the titles, all these things that he wants by John Connington, who who seems to know that that's what you need to do to make allies, I could see him eagerly hop aboard Team Fagon, you know, uh, mm. Blackfire, not Blackfire, who cares? I'm now the Lord of Starfall and I, I've been given dawn and I'm the sword of the morning and I, or the night, uh, you know, uh, finally all my <laughs> dreams are coming true. Of course he would go along with that. And then Daenerys, well, I don't see her catching up with Darkstar in wins necessarily. It's possible maybe at the end, but I could see him abandoning whatever ship he's on with someone else to go to Team Dragons too. I mean, above all else, I think he's, you know, going to want to preserve his own life. And and when you see something like that tip the scales of battle so much, you know, we've seen him betray someone before. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was someone who would do that again. Yeah, that's, I really like that idea of him joining Aegon, especially because we think that would mean a reunion with Arianne as well. So it'd be interesting to see her, through, to see her thoughts on that. 
I think it'd be quite cool if she's like, let's say she's married to Aegon at this point, or even just an advisor, and she's like, don't trust that guy. Do not trust that guy. Trust me. And Aegon's like, no, 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 he's on my team. Then Daenerys shows up with dragons straight away, like you say, Dark Star hop ship, uh, kill maybe he does something bad on the way out. Then he's team dragons. He he could be like a foil for Danny, just in terms of like he's the good-looking guy, he's the bad boy, that type of thing. I mean, maybe we've already had a fill of that with Dario, but he could fill the similar role. Right. It would be very interesting. And if you see Danny going dark or going, you know, going too far with her assumption of power, like, you know, she's going to need people pushing her in that direction on her team. And who better than this, this evil viper who betrays people all the time to kind of whisper in her ear, you know. If he didn't end up going with Team Danny, it would be really interesting if it turned out that Dawn could do something against dragons in some way, if that's what makes it special. I have no... (laughs) basis for that i just thought it'd be cool and i don't think he ever gets this far uh, into this great game but he seems like someone that peter baylor should really target like the angry outcast dude he seems like the dawnish lynn corbray to me like the the yeah. really grumpy but really good fighter uh obviously willing to do peter baelish type things like kill yeah. children i think if like you go into it like like baelish would where you presume like you you don't say oh he might have betrayed people before but he's gonna he's totally gonna be loyal to me i think you know uh little finger looks at things a little bit more clearly than that of like this guy right. is an asshole he's going to probably try to betray me so why don't i use that to my favor use him, manipulate him yeah, yeah into doing definitely. it the best way possible Cool. Good question. Let's move on to uh, question 37 overall, which is actually, again, we're kind of following a little line here along the south of Dawn. We've gone from Old Town, south of Dawn, south of Westeros, sorry, from Old Town and reached Old Town uh, through Dawn. Now we're kind of getting to the east coast. This question from, again, I will butcher this name, I do apologise, Yuha Alexi Yavampar. You've not messaged in to say that we're getting it wrong, so I'm assuming I've got it 100%, so I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Either way, the, the question is, after season eight, it is very likely that John Connington will burn down King's Landing, so the question says. Bells will be involved, so do we have a theory of why John would do this and how it might happen? Oh, difficult one, because I think maybe we do not agree with the question, in at least not on the first take. While I think some... Some kind of atrocity against the small folk, probably, is in John Con's future because of all his Tywin talk and him not being brutal enough in the past, uh, all those things. That's going to have a payback at some point, but I don't think it's necessarily definite it's going to be King's Landing. It could be. It definitely could be. But there's also a lot of other candidates for for doing King's Landing in, be it a Euron. Even a Danny, like you say, if, if she does go bad. Or my personal favourite is still Cersei, personally. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Um, like you have suggested, I think the symbolism with the bells and burning of King's Landing mostly comes from the show. Obviously, that's what happened there. But in the show, it, it obviously wasn't John Connington who burned the city. It was Daenerys. Mm. Part of that is because John Connington does not exist in any form in the show. Um, so I think the show's focus on the bells being the trigger point is what, of course, draws all of our minds to John and Tywin and the Battle of the Bells. But it doesn't guarantee for us that Daenerys was just a stand-in for for John and or Aegon. 
Um, since we have so many potential other candidates in, for King's Landing's destruction, I just want to point out that, you know, there are probably bells in, in many, many cities here uh, within Westeros. So it's possible that the bells come up in John's POV as a, another trigger point for him or, or the, the, you know, prelude to some horrible atrocity that he's going to commit in a Taiwan-esque way. But it doesn't have to be in King's Landing necessarily. I think like I agree with with you here when you say, you know, there's there's more textual book evidence of King's Landing burning via wildfire and Cersei as you say, although there are other candidates as well. I mean, it could be could be Daenerys. That's what the show showed us. So hmm. um lots going on. Yeah, I meant to uh do a quick search of the text and just look for bells and see how many times that comes up because I bet it's more than we think i'm sure there are other instances and it could be anyway could even be a reference to the dothraki still and that kind of bells in the hair type thing and that seems quite far away but that doesn't mean they're not going to come up against each other uh as we say it doesn't mean john Collinson's not going to be involved with uh whoever does burn it down he can still be there he can still be part of it even if it's not him who initiates or whatever else um Basically, with John Connington, it comes down to whatever he thinks is best for Aegon. Uh, if he thinks there's some benefit to burning down King's Landing for Aegon, he'll do it. He'll throw the first match himself. But personally, I find it hard to imagine why he would ever think that, that being a, an actual situation. Unless their plans have really come off the rails. Like, if they're losing, if Aegon's died, maybe, and he's like, right, screw all of you, burn you all down. Okay, can see that. More likely, I could see it being the result of an accident of them not respecting the power of wildfire. Tyrion's not here at the moment. He's not there to remind them all. Uh, I mean, someone doing that seems all but guaranteed. Maybe it's John Con. Again, maybe it's Cersei. That definitely would be my pick. But someone's going to use it, not respect it, and then the whole city's on fire. Uh, yeah. Maybe he's intending to use it against an enemy, like a dragon. Maybe he thinks I can burn a dragon with wildfire. It all goes wrong. Someone's left the cask open. Off we go. I really liked what you say about Tyrion not being there to warn them to be careful. And I think that like our two big candidates here, because we're obviously talking about John Connington in the context of this question, but we've also brought up Cersei quite a bit. All three of those characters, Tyrion, Tywin, Cersei, um, I won't get into Jamie because he's kind of the counterpoint to this, but um, they all think about Tywin a ton. They all try to embody Tywin. You know, um, John Connington, his whole POV is like consumed with thoughts of Tywin and being a, the hand that Tywin was. You've got Cersei thinking she's Tywin with teats, which is, of course, laughable. Um, and then we've got, but, you know, there's the the quote, uh, you know, we've got uh, Kevin Lannister talking about, you know, Tyrion really being the one who's most like Tywin. Quotes about him being Tywin writ small. So I actually like the idea of John or Cersei, you know, being a Tywin wannabe, but never managing to really be on Tywin's level would, you know, maybe discount the danger of, of wildfire and lose control of it. Something that Tyrion, who is a lot more like Tywin, very, very carefully avoided. John admires Tywin for his decisive ruthlessness, but seems to have missed the part of Tywin's character that he's this cold, calculating person who assesses risk very, very clearly. And this could be a great way to illustrate that for all of, of what John or Cersei, if it is Cersei, um, you know, trying to be like Tywin and trying to emulate them, they've just missed this huge part of this char his character. And that brings about total disaster for them and their allies. Yeah, that's a that's a super point. I really like that of them seeing kind of seeing the obvious but missing the foundation or the background or whatever you want to call it 
because that does seem like something both of them are quite likely to do. And also, you're pointing out here, I've really never connected that the three Lannister children have this really specific connection with wildfire. I mean, Cersei doesn't have it yet, but we we do think she's having it, and she at least has the beginnings when she watches the Tower of the Hand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's she's like, oh, I I like this. Her eyes are mentioned yeah. to be like wildfire. I mean, she and Jamie are twins, obviously, but uh, you know, when we talk about their eye color, it's always Cersei whose whose eyes are shining like wildfire, not not Jamie. Yeah, so I really like that actually. That Tyrion and Cersei are the ones we assume that will lose it, and Jamie was the one who saved everyone from it, and that's why he's the the kind of standout. Whereas they're both like Tywin type thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really like that connection. Um, bringing it back to John again. I think an outlier option, we we said, maybe Aegon dies and he tries to burn everything down. Okay, maybe he finds out actually Aegon isn't Aegon at all. And then he really loses it because he's obviously pretty pissed, which should be fair enough. And he just burns it down in retribution. But then that wouldn't fit quite as well with the Tywin themes of it being like uh, an assault, a, a way to get things done. So I don't think that's likely, but it is possible. I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit with his themes of wanting to be like Tywin, but it brings up something that I've always found really interesting about John Connington. Um, you know, if, if he finds out that Aegon is false, you know, I've always just found that, like, this idea that he, like, reveres Tywin to be total cognitive dissonance on his part because he's largely responsible for the death of Princess Rhaenys. Um, and I think that if John were, you know, has probably just mentally blocked this out is like not a big deal because at least Aegon survived and I found the real Aegon. So, uh, it's not bad, but it's not good. Um, you know, so would, would he flip on his idol Tywin if he found out that he was responsible for the death of both of Rhaegar's children? You know, uh, how, how would that change his inner monologue and his feelings of Tywin when we see his thoughts of Tywin just totally drop from his POV. Um, you know, what would, ha- what would happen there? Yeah, that, that's another really good point. You're right. He does just block that out probably because of general misogyny. If we're being, if we're being honest, <laughs> like he just doesn't think about Rainey's. I, I, that's another search. I'd be quite interested to do. How often does she actually come up in John Connington POVs? Because like you say, he knows Tywin is basically responsible for her death. Doesn't care. Doesn't come up because, hey, she's not a boy. She's not there. That kind of thing. It got on well with Crasta, you feel like. But yeah, that, that's unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I don't think either of us are too strong on the idea that it will be John Connington, at least not on his own. Uh, I do quite like the idea, depending on how far his disease has gone, like if, if his hand is like completely stone by this point, Maybe he's who they like strike the match off. Maybe he is the flint that strikes the spark. That's how he's involved. Like someone's not looking where they're going. Oh, on fire. City's burned down. I just want to say when I read your notes, I didn't realize that you meant that literally, and it's making me laugh so hard. No, I'm being completely (laughs) literal. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's great. Um, You know, I love this question. I'm sorry we might not fully agree with the idea that. Uh, our submitter had, but I think we've we've covered it really well in terms of um, y- you know options for how these themes could all play out and relate back to to John Connington. He's he's definitely doing something. He's oh doing yeah, something I mean bad. the bells, the yeah. Tywin sim- symbology, the burning, like it's all there. The the ingredients are there. It's just how how does that recipe get baked out in the story for us? So yeah, 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 yeah. 
All right, let's move on to question Ooh. 38. This is, we might be at our longest episode ever, I think, at this point, actually. Our last one set a now. record, but yeah. here we are. Um, okay, so question 38. Not including her sample chapter antics, who do you think will be the next person checked off Arya's list? And will it be of her own doing or a situation like Joffrey where they're removed in another way? And this, this is actually one of my questions, so I'll let you go ahead and go first. This is a good question. We always like talking about Aya, of course. Uh, well, I, th- I think probably the best way to kick this off is reminding ourselves what the list actually looks like at this point, because it has been a while. So, well, first, Joffrey, Polliver, the Tickler, and now Raph, if we're including the preview chapters, they're dead. They're already gone. Uh, so don't worry about them. Two of them have died by Aya's own hand. One of them by Sandor's, that was uh, Polliver. And one of them, Joffrey, by Massive Conspiracy. Now, so Gregor again, he's been pronounced dead, but we all know the truth. He's not really, or he is, and he's walking around. I don't know what you do on the list if that's the case. Put a star by it, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but either way, Aya hasn't heard about that, so it doesn't matter for, for these purposes. So who does that leave still living, Emily? Yeah, we've got, we've got Cersei, we've got Ilan Payne, Maren Trant, Dunson, and then, of course, both of the Cleganes, although you've covered Gregor already. Yeah, so we've got kind of six-ish, maybe, depending on what you believe about Sandor and and the Gravedigger. Yeah, not to mention there's a chance that Arya doesn't even consider Sandor as part of her list anymore, given the way that things kind of wrapped up with them. Yeah, I think she's just kind of ignoring that bit. She's folded the list a little bit. You Mm -hmm. can't see Sandor's name. Maybe she'll fold it back, maybe not. Don't know. So with all that, I think we'll save our thoughts on the Hound for another day. I'm sure he'll come up later. But we can touch briefly on the others. I don't think we need to go through it too far, but I'm going to start with my least likely candidate, which would actually be Dunson, uh, because I I wonder if it would be too neat, too kind of tropey, if you want to use that word, for, for all of Aya's list to be dead by the end of the series. Much as we might personally want to see it, how realistic is that really? Yeah, I mean, to me, that seems like a little too happy ending for me for a George R. R. Martin tale, or at least a little too clean, you know? Obviously, I think we are going to see some good things finally happen for Arya, but but will her whole list really get checked off? I don't know. Yeah, and he, like what he represents as a man of the mountain, that's already been dealt with. She's already uh, got two of those. Mm -hmm. So, uh, three, in fact. So, doesn't need to happen. Whereas all the others we've just mentioned are actually characters in their own right. Besides, anyway... Aya specifically highlights Dunson as someone who she's already forgetting what he looks like. That's how little he means. And that's all the way back in Storm. That's before she gets to the House of Black and White and has this whole new multiple lives. Now, to be fair, she said the same, she said the same thing about Raph and she recognised him okay. But that was incredibly lucky to just cross paths like that. So I don't think George is going to repeat that. Uh, certainly it would be hard for her to go looking for him. Okay, maybe she does just walk into him. But... Plus, he's, it's difficult. They all deserve to be on the list. They're all bad people. But Dunson, he's done the least to get on the list in the first place. As I said, he is one of the Mountain's men. So we've got no doubt. There's crimes are plenty on his list, on his ledger, so to speak. He's going to be sent down to the Seven Hells when his time does come. But Aya specifically only puts him on there because he took Gendry's bull helm. So compared to the crimes of the other people who've uh, ended up on the list... That was it. And we never saw him do anything else explicit in front of Aya. So she's not going to have the same drive to go after him as she would, let's say, a Cersei. 
It's not the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this could be a good point to illustrate some growth for Arya. I mean, we've seen her take issue with, you know, major crimes, like, of course, the killing of her father, but also, you know, the, the stealing of the bull's helm. We we saw her as recently as her time in Braavos uh, dispatch the Black Brother, who she, you know, thought was dishonorable and, and you know, doing bad things. So, uh, and in, in Harrenhal, uh, when she has her three deaths from Jack and Hagar, she doesn't go right after, like, the top tier. You know, she doesn't say, kill Tywin, kill, you know, um, go kill Cersei for me, go kill Joffrey for me. You know, she, she does linger on some of these, you know, smaller characters who she still thinks are evil. And, and I think, you know, will we see a progression in her with, you know, gosh, not everyone who ever does anything wrong deserves to die. You know, maybe it's, maybe we, we save some of that for the bigger villains of the story. I, I don't know. Um, but I do think it could be interesting to see if she eventually drops him from the list, uh, you know, mm. perhaps because George just doesn't introduce him again for a while or doesn't introduce him until after she's had some pivotal moment. Um, our friend, the hedge knight reminded us of the theory that, um, an Arya Stoneheart confirmation could bring Arya back from this dark revenge path she's on and, uh, maybe, you know, course correct her a little bit, uh, maybe help her realize that in the grand scheme of things, taking the bull helm was small potatoes and that, yeah, it's a, it's an asshole thing to do, but I don't need to go traipsing across Westeros trying to kill this guy for it. Yeah, it just wouldn't have the same catharsis to her as it would with with Raph or the Tickler, where she got ultra-violent and uh, was paying back something that she had seen these people do to other people. That's It's not the same situation. Right. I really like your idea of um, this being an opportunity for growth. I think maybe even if we see him again, we actually see Aya, like, turn away, like, mm-hmm. choose, um, I'm not going to. Because she could see him again. That's, it is that's reported exactly what was, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's reported he's part of the same group that was sent from Harrenhal by Jamie, the one that Raph was involved in. So it's likely he at least got to King's Landing. Uh, he could have even got along to Bravos, but probably not. So maybe if Aya does head back, maybe she does see him. And either it's a case of, well, I could go for you, but I'm on the trail of Merintrant or Cersei, and I'm going to choose the one that's more important, or even as much growth as like you've suggested i don't actually need to go for him i've got bigger things to do mm-hmm. so that would be my least likely I, I, it seems like you agree as well yes i do <laughs> so let's talk about some of the other ones cersei she's staying on that list i was not forgetting her but she's got plenty coming her way already and i i think we agree that most of it is not coming soon this stuff of jamie and the valenquire that's coming uh, earliest late wins um and i personally i do think her ending comes more aligned with jamie than it does with um than it does with i i think that's something that the show got correct again i choosing to turn away from cersei in the end yeah i mean i i would agree with that i think there's you know i'm not a hundred percent because there's always a chance but uh despite by Arya's skills, I think Cersei is also like the most secure and hard to get to of her targets, unless you count Gregor, just because it'd be hard for her to figure out and connect the dots that he's he's there and he is who he is. But um, despite Arya's skills, you know, it, it'd still be hard for her to get at Cersei. So even if we're you and I are wrong here and Arya does play a more direct role in Cersei's downfall, I think it's going to be a long way off story-wise. So um, you know, the question here is is kind of who's the next one on the list. And I think, you know, there's a chance she's still, you know, headed for Cersei at some point, but I don't think 
that's the first thing she does when she gets back to Westeros. And also, if she ever thinks, like, I want to do these in order and I want to have the best till last, she'd probably want Cersei last anyway. So maybe she's just going to keep her. Especially if Cersei does end up going west, like we think. Mm-hmm. Maybe Aya comes back, she's already gone. Okay, I'll do that one last. Yeah. So moving down the list then, uh, the Kagains, similar situation. Like we've already mentioned, she even if she wants Sander on there, she probably thinks he's dead anyway. No one said anything different so far as we... Well, Actually, there are a lot of rumours that Sandor Kagane's alive, so she could end up following those rumours, uh, and that could lead her back to Stoneheart. Maybe, we won't get into all that. We'll focus on Gregor instead. Um, I don't think it's likely she goes for him, if she does figure out it's Robert Strong, of course, uh, because it'd be weird for George to build up that monster so far and then have him fall like a pretty early hurdle. I think yeah. he's probably around for quite a while, and it just doesn't seem to fit. Yeah, I mean, I I have a hard time imagining like a Gregor Arya direct mashup for that same reason. Um, even though he's on the list, it just feels odd to me. He's got plenty of other enemies as well, and so does Arya. I think like if that were going to happen, it would be more like a I'm going for Cersei, and he's her guard and steps in the way, and she hmm, yeah. has to fight him, but maybe doesn't even realize he's the Mountain because who's predicting reanimated zombie Gregor like? Yeah, probably not Arya off the knowledge. bat, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, like you say, it could be in a situation where she kills him, doesn't even realize, and is like, "Oh, hang on, that's Gregor," and it would be cool to see, like, if he's killed a bunch of really strong knights by this point, and then the little girl kills him. Okay, that does make for a cool scene, but I just don't think it's very likely. Yeah, we'll get some people in the fandom who are you know butt hurt by that in the same way they were that uh you know upset about her killing the night king so at least you know the <laughs> there could be some yeah go strong girl you got the the, the big evil guy vibes going on there but yeah i think yeah oh, i mean i likely. would applaud it i love it oh yeah I oh it, yeah i just don't think it's likely i'm all for it i've got that t-shirt somewhere um, so that would leave then Ilan Payne and Meryn Trent. And both of those are a lot more intriguing to me because they still would mean an awful lot to Aya if she comes across them again. Meryn Trant, he's the killer of her beloved teacher who pretty much set her on this path of where she's ended up with all these skills. She definitely wouldn't have got this far without him. No way. Um, and also, not only that, he's also very much the face of Ned's fall and her escape from the Red Keep. He's the only enemy she really saw uh, when she had to run from Syria, that kind of thing. On the flip side, Ilan Payne is the man who actually did the deed. So claiming vengeance over either of them would be huge and would probably be an amazing read on terms of uh, what we got from her killing the Tickler and Raph. It'd be even more important to her. Yeah, I agree with these picks being the most likely, you know, if we go with like thematic deaths, um, like we saw in the sample chapter, um, I'm curious, like, you know, what Arya will do to twist the knife or remind them of their crimes against her, you know, um, she'd certainly need a different sword to behead Ilan Payne. Needle is not designed to do that at all. Um, there are theories out there, though, that she gets Dark Sister. So I wonder if, you know... Um, having a Valyrian steel blade would change that. Um, you know, I also wonder, could she get her hands on one of the blades that was forged from ice somehow? Um, it's a long shot, but it's, it's cool to consider. And I think, you know, uh, going back to Marin Trant, I think that, you know, probably something related to Sirio's lessons, like maybe one of the things that he was drilling into her would come up. 
Um, uh, you know, so I, I think, yeah, that. Yeah, that, I think both of those are very, very possible. Mm-hmm. Killing Marin Trant with a wooden sword, that would seem, uh, that would be pretty cool. Um, the the blades, we, I think we're correct in saying we don't know what happened to Joffrey's half. Like, we assume it's with Tommen. I, was, I would imagine it's, it's in mentioned. King's Landing, so if, yeah, if that's... Yeah, so she know. could pick it up. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know... Uh, that one is obviously light enough for Joffrey to pick up. How close to Joffrey is I in terms of strength by now? Anyone's guess how much of the magic of the face masks does affect your... Like, if you put on Sandwalk again's face, are you as strong as Sandwalk again, or does it not work like that? We've got no idea. So either of those are perfectly possible. Um, of course, they are in fairly different places at the beginning of Wind's uh, Trant King's Landing, Illumpain in the Riverlands, but... Both of those very often come up as a suggestion for our, for where Aya's going to go when she comes back. So they're both perfectly possible, I think. Exactly. Um, I know the fandom really like loved the idea or latched onto the idea of Ilan Payne becoming some kind of POV. You know, there's a lot of talk of would he be the prologue POV. And as we mentioned in our coverage of the prologue, that, that has been debunked by Lady Guinevere already. But... What if he ends up being our epilogue POV for dance and is killed by Arya in the epilogue? Like, this is just some random late night thought I had answering this question. But it would be well in keeping with George's style to humanize this monster that we've known as Ilan Payne just before giving us this huge revenge payoff that we've been waiting for. You know, Arya finally checks that name off the list. But we've also finally gotten inside the head of a man who is mute. And so we know very little about um, knowing how sympathetically George can write, you know, people we perceive as villains, this revenge might not actually feel satisfying to us as a reader, um, you know, and particularly when you think about like what Ilan Payne's specific crime is here. Yes, he took ice and he beheaded Ned and that is awful, but he's also the king's justice and was doing it on someone else's orders. So I think getting inside someone's head and seeing, you know, how, how like on board he was for that kind of evil act and that big shocking moment versus he's just a guy following orders because the Lannisters have been the only people who've like helped him out in his life ever. And, you know, they've taken in Podrick and they've done all these things for him. Maybe he's just a normal guy with his own personal motivations who did what he had to do because that was his job. And then here, you know, here comes Arya bent on revenge for something that really Joffrey is the the main culprit of. And, yeah. and, and Ilan yeah. Payne is just his arm. You know, how, how, how in keeping with, uh, you know, this like idea of vengeance not being satisfying would that be as an option? I think that's a, a brilliant pick, Emily. Ilan Payne as the epilogue. I mean, it, I guess it depends on how far you think the Riverland story or Aya story will have progressed in in wins, but I think there's plenty of room for it. Mm-hmm. And if she's got to get time, a Valyrian yes. steel sword on the way, then you know it could be yeah. late in the story. <laughs> could be, could be. But like we said, for the when we thought he might be the prologue, as you mentioned, it would be really good to get him as a as a prologue for his secrets, for George having the opportunity to write such a specific character. I think the best thing about it would be. Like we, so we've seen Aya and her skills through Aya's face, but imagine actually seeing it, like the the creepy little kid literally coming out of the shadows, three or four faces flying off at different times. You can do all this different stuff. Yeah. I, I like the possibility, maybe this is the bonding between her and Catelyn again. Maybe this is, they meet, they team up. What should we do first? Reunited mother and daughter. 
let's go and get revenge on dad's killer and you see coming out of the shadows one undead mother and one daughter with multiple faces and they both get him yeah i'd be pretty happy with that so I mean, so many scene. options there but yeah i think the idea like i'm i'm just not ready to give up on the idea of getting a, an ill and pain pov somehow so no we shouldn't we shouldn't because it's a good idea i like that i like that a lot all right well we should move okay. along <laughs> yeah we're getting there we're getting there question nine today 39 overall this is another one from micah so thank you micah this one says the weeper has been built up through a dance with dragons as he's killed rangers and he's pushed against the gorge so could we finally see him and perhaps his downfall in the winds of winter uh, and if we do then would we see him from stannis uh, if stannis maybe has to take him out at the wall or would it be from unjohn dead john reanimated john whatever you want to call him is it possible yeah, I I love that we're back up north of the wall for this question. We've spent a lot of time kind of moving south through our questions today. Um, th- this is such a great Micah question, too, because it's a very minor <laughs> character that I've had to do a lot of research and re-familiarize myself with. But um, yeah, so we're back north of the wall with, with basically almost no POVs beyond Castle Black other than Bran. And he's still very isolated. And, you know, we expect to see not just north of the wall, but... Lots of stuff going on with Bran. Um, he's not really interacting with the free folk or the others directly. So we just haven't had a ton of a chance to talk about what's going on up there with, with the remaining people who, you know, didn't take John's deal. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really good question, uh, obviously, because it comes from Micah. I like the Weeper talk. Uh, I like it too much, probably. So bad Micah for making me talk about it again, because this is another one I've had to resist slightly on and cut off half my notes because um if you're listening to scraps and scrolls we concentrate on the weeper a lot hopefully michael liked our coverage back then built up is exactly the way to describe this guy he's just been he's just been there he's just been present uh both at the end of storm and in dance he's not gone anywhere yet uh so well let's remind of the current situation uh because he was pretty present in dance we know it's all ended up in chaos and no one knows what's happening here there everywhere but as far as we know we think he's gone west again to the gorge to the shadow tower yet he could still be near castle black because you remember john sent out his his scouts three of them came back with their heads on spikes uh we we've attributed that we've attributed that to the weeper okay we don't 100 percent know that's the case but that's his calling card so maybe someone is acting as him I've thought before maybe this is Alice of Fawn betraying his brethren and trying to show John up. Probably not. It could be, but either way, that's what's, that's what's going on. More importantly, John intended to accept the Weeper when he brought all of the wildlings south. That was his big thing. It was pretty near the end of um, Dance of Dragons. You remember in his meeting with Burr Marsh and the other officers, one of many, he said, "No, even him. He get and as soon as he's south, all past crimes are forgiven." They can swear the oath, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And this was one of the final straws. For all we know, it was the final straw for Bowen uh, and others. That's a great point. In Scraps and Scrolls, we we said, we made a big deal that this was one of the only times, probably the only time, we did actually side with Bowen uh, and his mates. And we did say, John, no, mate, you've got it wrong. This is bad strategy here. You have to meet the brothers somewhere, the brothers of the Watch. And this would have been the place because... I mean, it it just makes sense. You can't just push, 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 push. We know you're right overall. You're all right. They all do need to come south. We need them all here. 
One, because we need to save their lives. Two, we need them to fight the, the others that are coming. So we know you need to kind of give this amnesty type thing, but you also have to satisfy the, your employees. And they really, really, really hate this guy, as they should. He's horrible. So if you're going to kill someone, kill this one. I know it, it's not as cut and dry as you want it to be. You're like Ned. You want everything to be neatly arranged and you know, a clear cutoff point, but it's not going to be. It, this is the time for nuance. Uh, and fortunately, that was just something John hadn't quite worked out yet. And he was kind of dealing with Bone Marsh anyway. He didn't want to give an, give an inch because Bone would take a mile, that type of thing. As we said, John is absolutely right. He's true. He's right. But he's dealing with the uncertainty of humanity. He has to have some give and take with that ultimate endgame philosophy. If he's going to get there at all, this was the time. Didn't happen. So the question now is, what what happens when John returns? If it's when, when John returns, has he learned that lesson? Has he been like, yeah, okay, I should have let the Weeper uh, pay for his crimes. I'll do it now. Or is he unwilling to negotiate either with the Weeper or with Bowen because of this changed nature that we're expecting? Maybe he's too harsh. Or maybe he's even more resolute to let the Weeper pass now. I mean, it wasn't the Weeper who stabbed him. It was Bowen and the others. So... If anyone's got cause to complain, um, this would this would be it. But he was one of the rarities, the Weeper, the, the two big uh, parties in John's life, the Brothers of the Night's Watch and the Wildlings, actually agree over. Not all of the Wildlings, but a, a, good, a good percentage. They don't like him either. So this would have been a really good way to get everyone together and be like, yeah, we hated that guy. Yeah, we hated that guy. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so... It's easy to forget if you haven't reread in a while, but as soon as you look kind of deeper at the Weeper in general, he becomes a pretty terrifying figure. And, you know, while I think the wildlings that go south of the wall, you know, are definitely more aligned with with Tormund and even the, the Black Brothers and not liking the Weeper, Mance actually was concerned that it could go the other way. Uh, when Mel reveals Mance to John after... He dies. They have this conversation and, and you know, John makes a comment about, oh, well, they're all going to, you know, I think they'll all rally behind Tormund and I maybe can, you know, work with that. And Mance actually warns him he's just as likely, they're just as likely to follow the Weeper. So, you know, the, and that's not who you want to negotiate with. Um, John's takeaway from that and from his own experiences is that he'd still let the Weeper through the wall if he joins the Watch. He has this kind of caveat to it. He thinks maybe this will satisfy people. As you say, it does not work. It, it probably was one of the, the final straws that broke the camel's back with, with the, the watch turning on John. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so this, of course, went over as a wet blanket for them. Oh, great. Uh, we'll have a new brother who's murdered dozens of us. Wonderful. Good idea, John. Uh, <laughs> including very, very recently, by the way, with the brutal triple murder of Garth Greyfeather, Blackjack Bulwer and Harry Hal, where he like leaves their heads on spikes outside the wall for the brothers to find. That's just gruesome imagery, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but beyond all that, it's it's a little unclear to me still what the Weaver's actual motives are. Even some of the most feral wildlings in the pack have seen the writing on the wall, so to speak, regarding the others and the potential for another long night. And they're like, fine, we'll go south. We'll make all these concessions to who we are culturally as a people because we would rather live than become undead zombie creatures um 
You know, I think the Weeper provides a nice contrast to the stubborn brothers of the Night's Watch who don't agree with John's decision to ally with the Wildlings. You know, we see most of the Wildlings that John interacts with directly. Like, they they agree with him. They they agree to the compromise. Um, I really think it's nice to see that there are, there are characters on both sides of the wall or of this debate here who are too stubborn or foolish, uh, depending on what you see. To see that, uh, to see what John does, which, you know, is, hey, you know, it's living versus dead here. Let's put some of these other squabbles aside for now. Um, we see the brothers kind of be stubborn to this and and not want to give too much ground. And, and the weeper is kind of the opposite of that, of like, okay, Jon Snow, yeah, I've seen the others. Yeah, they're bad, but like not bad enough for me to kind of compromise this, this lifelong blood feud I have with the Night's Watch. Yeah, it's interesting. I think again, it's kind of ironic that both Boa Marsh and the Weeper have such strong similarities, and that they're not paying attention to the bigger, bigger problem. Maybe the Weeper is, and he's just thinking this is the way to deal with it, or whatever. But it doesn't seem like it. Um, I, I quite like your point actually about how he he doesn't take the bigger message, or he's not as interested. Apparently. I think if we're going to compare him to someone, it could be Bloodbeard over in Marine, who's like, I don't care what's going on. I just want to kill people. I just want to fight. I don't care if there's dragons flying around. I just want absolute carnage. And so far, it seems like the Weeper is the same. Maybe there is more to him. We haven't met it yet. But from everything we've got, seems to be his thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree with Micah's suggestion in the question that we may see his downfall and wins. Uh, it could serve as a nice close-by illustration to the Black Brothers that they are absolutely no quarter given by the others you know imagine it you have the weeper basically camped out incredibly close to the wall at this point or close enough to leave those heads as the others push south the first display of their power and force to the watch may not happen to rangers because they've already been kind of being picked off onesie twosie but they're not being sent out in huge groups anymore there's no great ranging anymore um, you know, so this, their, their first big display of power here could be to take out the Weeper and his men. Um, it'd be incredibly poetic if that was what made the Bowen Marsh types finally realize what John had been saying to them all along. It's not about, the, you know, the humans on opposite sides of the wall. This is the living and the dead. Like, get on board. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've got, I've listed a few of the possibilities here and I'll kick off with with what you're suggesting that uh, yeah this really good uh one thematic image of them being like oh yeah maybe we should pay attention but also the kind of more physical image of them actually watching it happen um let's say he does die off screen before he can even move against the wall or cross the bridge of skull across the bridge of skulls assumingly that would be because of the others um I think probably we agree maybe had too much of a build-up for this to be his fate, but it's certainly possible and it would be worthy um, because it would get that get that message across, like you're saying, that others are here. And it would be a really creepy image if... Uh, so John's already got the letter that says, like, across the gorge, they can see all the fires of the wildlings. And just imagine this cold storm rolls in, and when all the fires start like winking out one by one, you can hear the screams from across <sighs> or up on the shadow tower. That would be a good way to get across. One reason I think maybe that's not likely is because that's too good of an image to not get in a POV. Unless John has gone to the shadow tower, maybe Stannis. It's possible. Brand, I guess, could see through, it. Or we see it the, through Ghost. <laughs> could see it through Ghost. It's very possible. I'm all for that. 
But yeah, that's definitely one option. I think him at least trying to attack the gorge is probably more likely. Mm -hmm. We already know he's gathered en masse there. Uh, like we say, the other side of the gorge is apparently rife. They're like, oh, this might actually get across if all these fires are actually wildlings. They're definitely not um, They're not hiding their numbers or anything. Plus, he knows probably that the watch is generally massively weakened. He knows what's going on, and he knows that surrounding area, so it would make sense. And it fits well. It, uh, if this does occur, that means there's a crisis at each point of the wall, like west, middle, east, everything's going on all at once. So even if John does come back like super fast, that's a major crisis to deal with. What do you do? Which end do you try and save? How do you divvy up the men? Right. Uh, do you abandon one? Are you like, okay, sorry, Shadow Tower, you're going to have to look after yourselves. And then how do you live with yourself with the consequences of that? I'd find that very fascinating to see. Whether that's John's decision, whoever else is, if Stannis gets back up there, whatever. I find it fascinating, especially, again, the, for this organisation that has zero leadership right now yeah. let's say cotter pike does sink at hard home john's still down dennis masters killed by the weeper what do they do they'd be in the largest turmoil ever everything happening at once that kind of deal which we know george likes this will also be one of the first big tests of the the wildlings who have you know started manning these castles their their loyalty are they going you know if something is going down at one of the more knights watch manned castles Will they ride to defend it or will they say, mm, we're going to keep our little spot safe? You know, how, how strong is that alliance, especially now that John is gone and isn't the one holding it together? You know, will will Tormund, you know, stick to his plan and really rile people up to come to the aid of this really diminished Night's Watch? You know, will he fight his own kind? You know, will we see wildling on wildling violence here? You know, we'll have to wait and find out. Yeah, that's a super point, actually. Like when push comes to shove, what are they going to do? And it might be a real geography-dependent answer. If I'm remembering rightly, I think Tormund is in one of the castles to the east, so he would be one of the more, but not right now, obviously, but he'd be one of the more likely to support, but that might mean he can't get to the Shadow Tower. I don't remember who's to the west. I know Ed Tillet and the, the whichever castle it is that has all the women, so who knows where they align? Do they stay still? Do they go somewhere? It'd be quite cool if that was a storyline that they're all staying and then John does awaken and he kind of gathers them all up and rides off to west or east or whatever he chooses. So yeah, that, that's a really good point. Just to jog everyone's memories, Howder and Toad, if you can remember them, friends of Jon Snow once upon a time, they're at the Shadow Tower currently. So maybe they fall and they become two more names that are etched on Jon's heart for failing to save them. Maybe we see them later as, as, as whites. Or maybe it's one of them who brings the news back to Castle Black, or maybe the Nightfall, or wherever John is, or whoever Stannis is, maybe. Mm -hmm. There's also major wildling hostages at the Shadow Tower, so um, I believe they're unnamed. I don't think they're anyone super important, but maybe the Weeper frees them, he gathers himself a, a following if they get the chance, and that all kicks off, because he could also march against Castle Black, or again, the Nightfall, if that's where everything's going down mm -hmm. if we believe he's still in that area or maybe he's marching after taking the shadow tower it depends yeah. on what his aims are like you say when you mentioned the hostages um, too i wonder if there's a potential you know we the <laughs> the wildlings for the most part think that mance is dead and that rattle shirt is a hostage so will they come and try point. to free rattle shirt and will the lid get blown off of all of that hey actually <laughs> no, <laughs> Mance is still alive, or Rattleshirt is definitely dead. You know, uh, 
I don't know if they'll get that far because I don't know that we know where rattle shirt is being held because we know that the person wearing that glamour is nowhere near right now yeah and also i mean the manse thing would be important because maybe there are a lot of wild things that are like well manse was my leader but he's been burned so if it's going to be anyone it's going to have to be the weeper now and gets a following that way so that's perfectly possible mm-hmm. uh like you say we don't know what his aims are so maybe he does want the war maybe he just wants to get past it Maybe he wants to leak into the Northwest and spread the misery he normally does. Um, I actually think it's very possible he heads to Bear Island and he forces them to the mainland. Maybe he thinks that'll get him safe from the others, possible. Um, Especially if the theories of him being descended from the Ironborn are true. Uh, and he definitely wants to move against yeah. Bear Island. And will and we that see, will we see Mormons. any particularly loyalty loyalties with Tormund? You know, will he will yeah. he ride to Bear's Bear Island? Ride to the to, defense of yeah. the sea bears. You know, like he that. is husband to bears, so who knows? That's a good idea. That's a good idea. But that would be another cool way to get them, the rest of the Mormons, across to John. We've already said like um, whoever, whichever one was of Asher, I've forgotten her name. Uh, is that Alison? Whichever one it is. Allie. Uh, she's already coming to John. Allie, yeah, I thought it was. Yeah. So that's possible. Um, but maybe he does want to actually take down the Night's Watch. Shadow Tower first, then Castle Black, then all the rest. Because that would make him, I mean, a legend in the history. He's obviously the most famous wildling ever. It depends if that's what he wants. But as Micah said right back at the beginning, Stannis is a great shout of someone who will bring him down. Especially if it's grumpy Stannis who's just been kicked out of Winterfell and he's like, well, I'm going to beat someone up now to make myself feel good again. The Weeper might be in the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, (laughs) very, very possible. All right, believe it or not, we've made it all the way to question 40. This is our last question. And we don't have a ton to say about this one, but uh, uh, excited to cover it. So this is from uh, Tom McShay from Fremont via email. He asks, do you think there's any merit to the lemon tree theory? It really does seem like Danny's memories don't jive with reality, but I'm not sure what story would uh, the story would gain by revealing that she didn't grow up in Bravos. Martin did say we'd learn more about the situation, though, so it's something. there's something we haven't been told yet. Yeah. Well, I'm glad this one is last, especially when we're three minutes off three hours of recording. Uh, who knows what the edited version is, but if you're watching the video... Wow, well done you for three hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, bloody lemon tree. I'll admit, I'll put my hand up. This is not a line of thinking I'm particularly fond of. have covered it at times in Scraps and Scrolls, but for the most part here, I'm going to hand over to you, Emily. And I'll, I'll chime in here and there if I need to, but you, yeah. you feel free to take this one. I think that, yeah, you and I maybe don't fully agree on this one, so I, I'm happy to cover it because I do kind of like parts of this theory now this is one of those theories that if you keep extrapolating it onto adjacent theories you can get into some major tinfoil territory and i think that that's why some people don't like it because it gets used to tie to stuff like r plus l equal j isn't real and there's this all these you know daenerys isn't a real targaryen stuff that gets latched onto the to the theory and i'm i don't want to address any of that because i think i i don't subscribe to that school of thought but um the heart of the lemon tree theory the the real like what actually the lemon tree theory is or lemon gate as some people call it simply proposes that lemon trees don't grow in bravos and that along with other climatological differences between daenerys's childhood memories and what bravos is actually like mean that she did not grow up in bravos as she assumes and thinks um 
there's enough textual evidence to prove that this isn't just like a discrepancy or an early game continuity issue. It comes up more than once, comes up more than twice. Um, and beyond that, the author himself has confirmed that there's some some significance, as Tom reminded us in sending in this question. So here's the context. Um, Martin was asked the following question on LiveJournal. I'll read this part out for you. So uh, Danny remembers a lemon tree outside the house of the Red Door in Bravos, but citrus trees shouldn't really grow in Bravos's cold, foggy climate. So is this discrepancy significant does it point to future revelations about danny's past thank you so much so george doesn't do what he normally does here and say oh just keep reading he his reply was very perceptive of you yes it does point to well that would be telling so anyway uh i don't think that i think that, that points to the fact that that you know there's something going on here that daenerys probably didn't grow up in Bravos, or at least that the house with the red door is not in Bravos. Perhaps, you know, this was early enough in her life that she's getting two different things, totally confused. You know, maybe she was in Bravos when she's so young that those childhood memories didn't sink in. And later she thinks she's still in Bravos, but she's not. Who knows? I mean, I don't want to, you know, we don't, let's not uh, worry too much about the exact travelogue of like a toddler, you know, <laughs> but um but I, I don't think that she was in Bravos at the House of the Red Door based on, you know, the evidence that we've seen and what George has said. Um, however, I think there's reasoning behind the detail being included probably does not go like super, super deep. Um, you know, to me, I think like the most logical, like the Occam's razor here is that, you know, you don't tell a young child exactly where they are because they don't always know who to trust and they could betray their hosts. Uh, you know, uh, we see a similar theme with, Sansa thinking that she can trust Cersei and that leading to her father's betrayal and death, you know? Uh, so, you know, Daenerys could, you know, she's thinking about, she's talking about, she's telling some of the people that she's close to who, you know, Jorah betrayed her. There's other betrayals going on. So she's just talking about Bravos around some of these folks and, or thinking about it around some of them. I could see the whole thing just being as simple as we don't want you to accidentally say you grew up in Bravos or wherever you actually did grow up and have someone, you know, trace that back to who that person actually is and betray them. I think, you know, a good candidate for that is the Martells. You know, maybe she perhaps was in Dorne at some point, either with them or one of their their allies. Uh, you know, Dorne has gone to significant lengths over 13 years to keep his record clean and to have no one ever know about this marriage pact to the point that it, it's actually part of why it fails is that no one knew about it until way too late. Um, so, so it could be something like that. Um, beyond Dorne, there's other options. There's there's Lys, there's Mir, there's Volantis. Some are more likely than others. I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of these locations specifically or not. Um, we can cover it. We don't have to. Nah. All right. Um, so I think the main chink in this theory um, here that I, I think like you will probably agree with me on this part of it is um, that we are told that Oberyn goes to Bravos as a proxy for Dorne to sign the marriage pact between Viserys and Arianne, witnessed by the Sea Lord and co-signed by Sir Willem Derry on Viserys's behalf. Now, this is something that Danny remembers or sort of pieces together when Quentin shows up like, oh, OK, that must be when that pact was signed. I, you know, that makes sense. We were in Bravos, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but there's some unreliable narrator potential here, given her young age at the time of signing. The Sea Lord could have traveled to Dorne or whatever free city she was in. 
Derry could have left them somewhere short term, traveled to Bravos, leaving her in the care of someone else for a short time. Um, it could have been witnessed by someone else, not actually the Sea Lord. Um, that to me is the least likely of these three options because like, you know, the scrap of paper is there. I think she would know. Um, but he might not have actually signed it himself. He could have just witnessed it. I don't know. Um, I at least know here in the U.S., like when you get married, for example, your witnesses to your marriage actually have to sign the certificate. Uh, so so I feel like his name should be on that parchment somewhere. Um, to me, it's really a shame that the co-signers are both dead. So we will likely never really find out about this. But as Martin said, more information is coming um, you know, there's certainly some level of significance, but it's really hard to predict exactly what or how deep it goes. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you uh, on all counts. I, I won't go into why. I, it's not that I dislike the uh, the notion of it. Like you say, there's obviously something there. I just think that this is one of those things that some people put too much emphasis on. And I think actually the most interesting thing I've ever discussed about it came up with yourself earlier on discord when we were just talking about this question because it seems to me like when when prophecy stuff comes up for john or the like clue stuff of john's past it seems to fit really well for everyone and they just kind of accept it and say yeah this blend, blends well with john but for danny it always just seems to be like well no she can't do this she can't do that because of this door or because of this tree or this specific fruit that she remembers or whatever else and it seems more of a way to people get things to put in her way or take away from what she's actually doing or appreciating her as a character. So I've no doubt there's something there and I'm sure it'll be interesting whenever it gets to us. I just think sometimes it distracts too much. Well, it, yeah, and that's a, that's a great like gender commentary <laughs> that you make there is that like, oh, right. it's the it's the male protagonist. So yes, it all makes sense. It's all leading to this big mm. Zora high, like he's the hero moment. Oh, with Danny. Oh, let's. Uh, oh, I don't know. Let's throw these little details in the way that that you know muddy yeah. it or that you know take away. From I don't want to talk about freeing the slaves. I want to talk about the color of a door, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, yeah, I, like, I, it, I yeah. I think like Martin doesn't actually outright say it's significant. He just says it'll point to something, whereas the questioner asks if it's significant. So I think mm. I think what it means is that like the discrepancy is there for a reason, but that like people are probably digging like way too far into like what this means or the impact that it has on the story. Like, you know, it could be something as simple as like, you're a dumb kid and we don't want you to like out whoever was actually protecting you because yeah. Robert Rathian yeah. will 10,000% murder that person if he catches wind of it, you know? I think the most likely or maybe most likely is not the right word, but like the controversial thing that could come out of it is not actually to do with Daenerys herself and just points to someone else. It reveals something about a different character that we didn't know that someone we're not aware of uh having knowledge of danny at that time or being aligned with danny at that time actually was like i don't know mm -hmm. maybe it was varus down there or something like that though someone uh, unknown to us maybe the danes are more involved than we knew or what <laughs> the sea lord of bravos actually wasn't there it was just varus in a different disguise <laughs> Could be. i mean i do think I do think this is an opening for more Sea Lord stuff because like we said in an earlier question, I do think they're they're gonna come into it. So I think it'll be important in that it will open doors to somewhere, but I just don't think it's as it's not going to change who Danny is or change her direction in any way. I think it's a detail. So uh like no no sense against the question. I know it interests a lot of people and that's absolutely fair enough. People find interest in whatever they do, but it's just not one for me. 
Absolutely. Well, I think you answered it perfectly. Yeah. So I think we can probably <laughs> cut it off there, right? Sure. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Really I don't have more to say on the commodity. <laughs> We don't have much to say on the lemon tree. And we are over three hours. We've had a lot of good questions today. And that was one of them because people are super interested. Mm -hmm. So that's fair enough. But I think probably both our voices are going. <laughs> who knows how the how I ran the out of coffee gone. like an hour in. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had a sip of water since we started. So you can probably hear it in my voice. <laughs> I think we can wrap up fairly quickly today. Obviously, luckily, today we're not doing the extra patron station 15 minutes now we'll save that for next time. We'll make sure we have some shorter questions on that episode. But still, we thank you everyone for listening or watching or whatever it might be and for sending your questions in. Should we remind everyone very quickly of what today's questions were in case they do want to send in answers? Sure, I can read through those. On the notes here. Yeah, do you want to get, give us the first five and I'll finish off. Sounds good. So much scrolling up. All right, question yes, 31. If Westeros had a newspaper, give me one of the most misguided headlines they would run during Winds of Winter. That was your question. Um, next question like from Patron Agan the Sixth. I'm wondering if you think that uh, George has another rug to pull out from under his readers. Nothing forecasted like Euron bringing down the wall or stealing a dragon. Does he have another Ned beheading, Red wedding, John dying type surprise? Uh, a loss or event that fundamentally changes the direction of the story? And what would it have to be to shock us? Uh, question 33, a little briefer from Willard the Slumbery. Will any pregnancies be brought to light in the winds of winter? Question 34, I'm going to just summarize this one because it's very long. But this yeah, is our yeah. question about, um, you know, asking Craster, uh, why did you begin sacrificing your sons to the others? As well as, you know, some of our favorite questions that we could ask Um uh, character and then question 35 what do you think sorella will get up to from winds of winter and that was low the links i'm sorry i totally forgot to say jonathan taylor gray was question 34 cool 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 okay so after that we had very close by question 36 was who we thought dark star would align with and what his motives would be whether he'll get his hands on dawn that kind of thing then number 37 oh, and that was from amanda from twitter by the way sorry then yuha yuha alexi yavanpa asked after season eight, it was very easy, uh, very likely John Connington will burn down King's Landing. How do we think that will all go down? We kind of disagreed, but we had a good answer anyway. <laughs> Emily, one of your questions was about Aya's list. That was number 38. Uh, who's left? Uh, who will be most likely to be killed by Aya or by other means? Number 39 from Micah was the, about the Weeper, whether he will be seeing his end in wins, what we think he's up to. And then lastly, question 40, which came from Tom uh, via email, was do we think there's any merit to the lemon tree theory? Which, in fairness, we did answer pretty specifically about merits and uh, what we think might come out of that. So thank you one and all for those questions. There was some, I really like this bunch. I think, again, some really good ones for you guys to send in answers to, if you'd be so kind, especially the newspaper one. Get your headlines in. Please. And you can get That'll some funny fun. ones out of that. Yeah, and if you're overall, having trouble remembering these questions, I've started a Twitter thread, which we can link uh, in the description to this episode, which has more concise versions of all of the questions we've asked so far. So please feel free to, you know, reply to those tweets or to just, uh, you know, send in some responses as you go through them again with us. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It's pretty easy to forget, especially on a three-hour episode. So you're completely forgiven if you forget every now and then. And also, it's fun to see what other people are saying on those threads. So that might spark a, an answer in your mind, and uh, you can just talk about the show, which is lovely. Of course, we'd like that. Absolutely. Apart from that, I think it's time to say goodbye. So thank you, everyone, for listening, questioning, answering watching whatever else you're doing to all of our patrons of course emily thank you for coming back aboard the aisle thank you for having me <laughs> for so long longest stay yet we'll try not to beat that anytime soon i know i need to go on a dog walk very quickly you're probably much the same oh yeah but uh, we will see you next time don't forget emily is appearing on radio west Plus live stream uh, it was the 17th you said wasn't it yep so, 17th 5 p.m uh, eastern it'll be available on brilliant. demand later of course, of course. We'll definitely um, advertise that in the week as we go, but we'll try and get this out before then. Three hours, we'll see how that goes, but uh, <laughs> that's the aim. All right, thank you, everybody. We'll, of course, be back with part five and all the stuff we mentioned at the beginning. I'm not going to remind you of now. We will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.